This is Strange Assembly episode 230, PAX Unplugged 2017. I think I'm pretty safe needing that 2017 there, right, Jay? I mean, there, there is going to be a PAX 2018 episode, I suspect. I assume so, yes. <laughs> Unless the country completely devolves into open chaos and they don't do con- gaming conventions anymore. Yes, I think they already have a scheduled, maybe November 30th, is it? It's going to be, so it's not at the same, maybe it's because it's not going to be at the exact same time as BGG.com. Mm. But that was Jay Earl. Hello. I am Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. This episode is going to be all about our experiences at the inaugural PAX Unplugged, which also doubled as, and I appreciate this very much, guys, the biggest birthday party for me ever. (laughs) They forgot cake, though. I'm humbled. I'm humbled. I'm humbled. I, I I didn't deserve it, guys. I'm, I know but I appreciate it. (laughs) Don't worry. They decided you were right that you don't deserve it, so they're not going to give it to you next year. (laughs) They aren't. That's correct. Uh, (laughs) So so my packs actually kicked off on Thursday. I showed up the evening beforehand, do a badge pickup, and go to a party on Thursday night. And this kind of starts off like if you've been listening to this podcast for a while the only really live from an event podcast we've done are gen con and it would be wildly inaccurate to think of pax unplugged as small i heard estimates of maybe twenty thousand unique guests for pax unplugged but at the same time that's so much smaller than gen con mm. And that was nice in a lot of ways. It it still is very much a large group of people gathering together, and there's still the exhibitor hall, right? This isn't, like I mentioned, BGG.com. That is less than 3,000 people, so it's not that kind of small convention vibe. But one of those was you show up on Thursday, the day before the convention, and there's basically no one there, right? You roll into Gen Con on Wednesday, the day before the convention, and you may have to wait in line for half an hour, an hour, or whatever, depending on how things are moving, to pick up your badge when you show up the day before. So that was that, that was interesting. I think we saw right from the beginning that Fantasy Flight was continuing its push with the Legend of the Five Rings LCG, something that Strange Assembly can wholeheartedly get behind. Yes. <laughs> so right, they they had the they had the back ad on the convention book. They had a big Tagashi Yakuni L5R banner up in the the main hall that ran along the expo, uh, the main hallway that ran along the expo hall. So and then I I went to the 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 ninth level games gathering on Thursday night, which for me mostly consisted of talking to other industry people. They did have many 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 different kinds of donuts, but I restricted myself to to one sweet thing and uh, <laughs> and resisted anything else. <laughs> You're better at that than I am. Sweets? Yes, mm-hmm. I have I have other weaknesses, but like what and well if the sweet is ice cream or or something similar that poses more of a problem. But what is it? Cheese is cheese is really good and not so good for me. No. But so delicious. And I also will shout out to 
the Palmers of the Sixth Ring podcast. They you'll, you'll hear more. You'll see more later. If you go, they do this. They did the streaming for the Legend of the Five Rings Grand Cote, but they also put me up. So there was not a lot for me on Thursday. I got to drive up. You had to fly yourself in because. Being in the same city as one PAX is not enough for you, Jay. Nope, nope. <laughs> gotta, gotta get all the PAXs in. <laughs> you need to yeah. win Omegathon if you're going to get all the PAXs in, I'm pretty well, sure. Yes, that's that's true. I, I would love to win an Omegathon and get a free trip to whatever PAX Australia in the world I want. <laughs> You'll have to compete next time, though. You can't yeah. win if you don't play, Jay. If they want to randomly pick me at any of the PAXs I go to, I, I'm there. I, yes, I... <laughs> You know, I, I signed up for the email, and I've sadly not been one of the 20 picked of the however many thousands at any given packs, so. <laughs> well, if you just keep going, eventually you'll get it. Exactly. That's that's the plan. All right, so, so you flew in at some ungodly hour on yeah, Friday. I, I made the mistake of being like, well, if I do a red eye, then I don't have to take Thursday off, too, since I'm taking time for thanksgiving in here as well and so yeah my friday is kind of a blur because i think having left seattle at about 11 o'clock at night i got into philly about 10 in the friday morning and not you know airplanes are not the best most conducive for good sleep but nonetheless I, i had a pretty good friday spent most of it just wandering around, checking out the exhibitors, doing the PAX XP, just seeing what there was to see, what the convention looked like, and then capped it off, finished with uh, Pat Rothfuss, who's an author. If you're not familiar with him, he's one of the Acquisitions Incorporated people. He did an hour where he did a Q&A, and if you've not been, you should go, because he, he's quite the entertaining storyteller. <laughs> you see, Jay has to add add these in uh, if you don't know who he is things for my benefit. Yes. Jay, I think it's fair to say out of the two of us, you've kind of cornered the market on uh, the broader pop culture knowledge. <laughs> I, I am the bigger nerd here, yes. I, I will take that. <laughs> well, I mean, if you were asking about you know nerdy stuff from, say, 10 or 20 years ago, I think I'd, I'd, I'd keep up. But mm-hmm. yeah, not not it it may or may not have something to do with the birth of right. my children. I'm you, not sure. You, you took an arrow to the knee and uh <laughs> yes, down I went. Yeah. So, I opened up my Friday morning by playing in one of the playtests for the upcoming 5th edition of Vampire the Masquerade. They had actually started doing some of these at Gen Con. And I had lots of other obligations, and so by the time I realized that they were doing them, I didn't have the chance to check it out there. So I wanted to make sure that I I got in on this unpack, so I put it in as my first thing to do on the first day. And and just, you know, to reflect how much it, you know, it was that I wanted to do this at the end of it, because this, this is basically still in... I think it's an alpha playtest version. Still, uh, the game's not coming out until sometime next year. And they actually have you fill out a questionnaire at the back end of it about what you thought. And then there's some, I guess, demographic questions. And one of them was, how many role-playing game books do you own? How many White Wolf books do you own? 
all of the above. Well, yeah. I'm like, I don't know. I have a lot. And I, I wrote down 100 plus for how many White Wolf books that I own. And so I felt obligated when I got home to actually get a better count. And I, in fact, have over 250 White Wolf books. Wow. Which is kind of terrifying in some ways. See, knowing you, I feel like you should have just written down how many did they print. <laughs> um, I can almost say that with Vampire. Yeah. Very close to being able to say that with Vampire. I don't own Who's Who Among Vampires, Children of the Inquisition. I think that's it for actual honest to goodness. Like the original, I don't know. I don't own all the V20 stuff, which actually goes to one of the other things I liked about this, which was that they're actually going to be doing it in stores. There's a lot of role-playing stuff now that it seems is almost exclusively distributed through drive-through drive RPG or direct purchases from the company on the website, or, or maybe even only drive-through RPG, either the PDF or, or the printout. And I think that's unfortunate. You know, you go into a game shop, and yeah, they're going to have the Fantasy Flight Star Wars, and they're going to have D&D, they're going to have Pathfinder, but they may not have anything else for role-playing books on the shelf at the local game shop. So I think it's cool that they're doing that. I had a fun time playing in the playtest. I'm not sure how much I can really say about it mechanically. It's in such an early form that anything I say now might be irrelevant to where they actually end up with the game. But they did do something different with the blood points. Instead of just having blood points, your character has a hunger level. And the higher the hunger level on your character is, which goes up from, you know, it goes up for a lot of the same reasons that you, you would have spent blood points in the old in the old version you roll like red i guess they don't have to be red but it you know it works better if they're red you are red dice and replacement for your normal dice and if you get a big success fueled by red dice or or that sort of thing your character might lose control and frenzy a bit or whatever <laughs> so i had a fun time doing that so that was that was basically the first half of my... You know, like that was the first half of the Expo All Hours for me. That was the first third of my day on Friday. The second third of my day on Friday was a bunch of interviews. And so what I'm going to do now is kick this to those interviews. And you may hear some, some things from me in the meantime, but... So I'll kick it off first to my my interview with Dr. Finn's games. This is post-production, Chris. I'm adding this in after Jay and I finished recording. I was going to add the interview clips from PAX Unplugged into this episode, and I want to apologize in advance because there are some real distortion problems in the interview, especially when I'm talking, because I'm a loud person. I was using new audio recording equipment at PAX, because if you listen to our Gen Con episode, you may recall that our Gen Con episode uh, wandered off. That's not an excuse, though. Uh, I should have done a better job in advance of PAX, making sure that everything was a go with the new dedicated recording device, uh, or maybe next time I'll simply use an iPhone because that seemed to work out okay as a replacement at Gen Con. Regardless, 
I apologize in advance for the excessive distort that you are going to get in some places in some of these interviews. We're talking to uh, Steve Finn of Dr. Finn's Game. So let me ask, lead off with a very important question. What are you a doctor of? I'm a doctor of philosophy. So I'm actually a professor of philosophy. It's, that wasn't even a fake name. So no, I could... it's not a fake name. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now, I said we got to go on the recording for this because you were telling a story that involves video cassette cases, which not only dates you and me. Do you ever have that with somebody who's like, what's, what's a VHS? What's, what's a VHS? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the quick story, I'll try to do as quickly as I can here. I was living in Seattle a long time ago, and I decided I wanted to start making my own games. So I made a deal with a local print shop to use their digital printer. I bought a Kluge letterpress to cut cards and made a die cutter. You can look that up on the internet. It's this old World War II machine with lots of spinning wheels and suction cups, and it's a very steampunk kind of thing. And I would have the cards made in the print shop, and then I'd cut them in my garage, and then I'd make the rules also at the print shop and make all the things that I needed to make. So I focused a lot on small board games and small card games, mostly. And then to package them, I originally started to put them in little cardboard boxes that I stuck a label on, but then I discovered these VHS cases. And for those of you who don't know what a VHS is, you can also <laughs> Google that, because yes, it's dating us. And so I'd make small batches of games, like uh, 50 to 100 copies. And with my first game, which is now like my most uh, popular game, Biblios, uh, it was called Scripts and Scribes back then. I made 50 copies of a game, and then I uh, went on Board Game Geek, which I had just discovered at that time, and I said, does anyone want to try my game? And I got a number of people said that they'd try it, so I sent it out. And uh, Stormseeker75 on VGG does a lot of reviews. <laughs> he loved it. And uh, I guess a lot of people liked his, you know, Steve. He's a, he's a friend of mine now. But he... Um, he gave it a great glowing review, and I had to start making more. So I started selling these VHS cases. Somehow a copy made it over to France. I don't know how, because I wasn't selling them to anyone in France. I wasn't shipping them outside the country. <laughs> and Yellow contacted me because they wanted to start making games. And they decided that Biblios, or they changed the name to Biblios, and that was going to be their first uh, game. And so now it's still selling. It's one of their most popular selling games, and that's how I my that's how I got my name out there was by, by them picking up the game. Yeah, well, and that one was done by Yellow, but most of your games are self-published and not out of your garage anymore. Well, they're actually still in my garage. I don't I don't I don't manufacture them in my garage. There's actually if you go to my garage right now, there's a probably a couple thousand games in boxes over on the side that I sh slowly ship to uh, Amazon. But no, Biblios was the first uh, game. And then after that, I, I self-published uh, a dice version of that. It was called Scripts and Scribes the Dice Game, but then I've re renamed that to Biblios Dice, which I now self-publish as well. But then I discovered Kickstarter, and now uh, I've had 12 successful Kickstarter campaigns uh, that started way back, you know, 10 years ago or so uh, with a game called Gunrunners. So most of the games that I publish, I do myself, I do through Kickstarter. The only exception to that is I have now a good working relationship with uh, Pencil First Games, and we've uh, we've published Herbaceous, 
Sunset Over Water, and we're now currently working on uh, what's called Herbaceous Seedlings, which is basically Herbaceous Dice. Okay. So if somebody was going to go and other than the Biblios get the like a signature Dr. Finn game, which one would somebody go try, check out? I would think a signature game would be Cosmic Run. Now, uh, unfortunately, that's out of print, but I am going to do a new version of it coming up soon. But that's essentially a, a dice. It's a dice manipulation game. Uh, a lot of the games I make do have dice in them, but I try to mitigate the dice rolls because I hate, I hate games that are dice games that are just luck. So there's still, obviously, because there's dice, there's still elements of luck. But Cosmic Run is probably would be the one. I think Herbaceous also, it's very light, my lightest game, but that's also very kind of indicative of the kinds of games I make. Most of the time, they're kind of 20 to 30 minute games that have, what I try to do is make sure that they have, they're light, easy to learn, but that they have some elements of skill that you have to make interesting decisions. So as I watch people play at my table here today, I can see like, I can see people like, oh, what should I do? And I'm like, all right, good, I made a good game. Because <laughs> I can see them, but it's not like so much thinking that it uh, leads to too much analysis paralysis. Yeah. Okay. So that that would be, I'd say Cosmic Run would be the one to look for. But I have, you know, I have 14, 15 games. I actually, <laughs> I actually don't know how many games I have. <laughs> it's I, hard to keep track. Yeah, I'll say, I think, I think yeah. most people who have had uh, published games know exactly how yeah. many published games they've done. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I just lose track. Okay. And then, because I also have, like, games that are in the works, you know. I have three games right now that I'm working on, and they're going to, I'm going to do a double Kickstarter in February. Oh. Um, so I'm going to see how that goes. Two at once and see. They're totally unrelated games. I have no idea if this is a good or a bad idea. <laughs> but uh, I know, like, the people that buy my games, they, on Kickstarter, it's a lot of the same people. So I know they're going to do it anyway, so why not give them, you know, a, a less expensive option, get both games at once, I don't have to pay for double the shipping, etc. So I'll see how that works. Okay. What are those two called if anybody's looking for them? Right, yeah, so uh, Waters of Nereus is a game. It's a uh, simultaneous action selection where you, you choose an action. The basic idea is you're moving ships around this fantasy world, collecting treasures that you're using to pay off your crew. And when you pay off your crew, you then get added bonuses and points. And then that artwork is being done by Beth Sobel, who did Herbaceous, but she's like a really great artist and a lot of people right now love like everything she does so i always like to plug that because she's so good and then the other game is a new version of cosmic run so those two are the games that are coming up probably in february and that's that's what's what's that's what's on deck and then herbaceous dice or seedlings is probably going to come in march or april but that's pencil first games they run the kickstarter for that okay well yeah. we'll have to Check those out when they start showing up on uh, the web on February. In February. Yeah, and anyone who's interested can go to drfins.com to uh, find out how to sign up or get my Facebook and Twitter info because I'm you know, announcing things through those outlets. Good. Nice talking to you today. Nice talking to you. So after, after talking to Dr. Fins, I've talked with some of the folks working on the upcoming Grimmer Space campaign setting, which is compatible with... Starfinder, uh, and those are the guys from Iron GM. I'm here at the Lone Wolf booth at PAX Unplugged, but I'm not talking to folks from Lone Wolf right now. I'm talking to Roan Barton and Lou Resta from Iron GM. 
and you want to dazzle me with your tales of celebrity-drenched role-playing products, right? Celebrity-drenched! <laughs> yes, you yes. are good with words. Melted down Sean Acid and... <laughs> Dr. Wesley Snipes. Yeah, no, Dr. Wesley Snipes, courtesy of B.J. Hensley of Lone Wolf Development and Playground Adventures, sent a proposal we wrote to Dr. Snipes, who is a gamer, and he loved it, and he's going to join the project as a creative developer. And we also called our friend Sean Aston, uh, who you might know as Samwise Gamgee, or Rudy, your Goonies, or Bob the Brain, or all those right. other wonderful, beloved roles. He, too, will be a creative developer on our game, along with a cadre of superstar authors. We have Eric Mona doing our forward, and... Jason Bullman. Jason Bullman, Adam Daigle, Ben McFarland, who's won more Ennies than he can probably carry. Yeah. Right? Um, BJ uh, Hensley is going to do a cameo. Right, Larry the, Elmore. Larry Elmore, the artist who did all those uh, delightful dragon covers for Dragon Magazine back in the day. He's actually a Kraken science fiction author, too. He's doing something for us, and we've got a... Uh, the fan favorite Richard Pett will be writing his first ever... Has already written yes. and delivered and is uh, in my hands for editing the first ever Starfinder adventure. So, um, yeah, it's an amazing, amazing team that I'm very, very grateful to have for our new game Grimmer Space which is Starfinder compatible and one of the things you can do in this game is see what happens when science fiction goes up against science fantasy right. describe the galaxy a bit sure so what what we've got is a we start with a purely science fiction world where the inhabitants of which the Grimmers have been fighting alien horrors from the depths of the what we call the gyre uh, a, a vortex of stars, and they, um, their galaxy has been invaded by uh, super mages from another dimension who have shown up and said, "Ah, this is e- this will be easy. There's no magic here, and we're nearly gods." And no, it's not going to be quite that easy. And how it exactly it plays out, well, that's what our players will tell us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so what we have is Grimmer Space is a setting and adventure book. Right. So it's not just the backstory and it's not just the cold rules you're going to be immersed like Berlitz when you learn a language you're going to be immersed in adventures many adventures 70 out 500 word adventures uh, all throughout the book uh, our 16,000 word adventure from Richard Pett right and with little sidebars that'll teach you more about the setting as you go so you'll kind of like with old Greyhawk campaign in D&D you didn't really people didn't initially get the Greyhawk map most early gamers learned about Greyhawk one adventure at a time. Right. That's how you came to knowledge. Right. Only, only we actually know what we're doing from the start of it. We have the full vision, <laughs> right? So, and, and that means the approach is enough of setting and the setting part of the book to ground you in it, and then we get right into set-piece adventures. Small adventures, you can run in a session or two, and if you want to immerse yourself in our Grimmer Space setting, you can do that. And we want you to do that, of course. Our, our horror... Um, Low magic, science horror, fantasy, science, science fiction. fiction. Yeah, um, but if you don't want to do that, you just want to use it to get your head and your and your table wrapped around the Starfinder rules. You can do that too. They're really intended to say, "Hey, we're going to play this one tonight," and uh, and and get in and out and having a, a great time and understand, you know, what the Starfinder rules are about. So so the book serves multiple purposes, and with any uh, with the help of the of the gaming community and um, uh, our celebrity. Uh, celebrity guests working in creative development. We hope that we'll go a full length on our um, our stretch goals, 
and wind up with the magic trifecta of a GM setting an adventure book, a player book, and a bestiary. You know, so uh, and then plus stretch goals for days. And then with with Doctor Snipes out there doing interviews for this, and for Sean Aston, Sean Aston will be out there doing interviews. There's a really good chance for this to be the project that brings a lot of new people into gaming. So we're going to try to make it very comfortable for these folks. We're running our Kickstarter for 35 days, which is a week longer than, say, 28, because uh, the gamer crowd is pretty used to Kickstarter. Take my money, fine. <laughs> but but outsiders who come in and say, okay, uh, I'm willing to try this out, they, they might have cold feet at yeah. first. So. No, I mean, the game community is used to Kickstarter, and they're, and they're generous. Like, they want, they, they love their hobby, and like we do, and they want that hobby to grow so they're willing to put their money behind people and help them get started right uh we've been out there doing iron gm as an event that we uh, it's a touring tournament and what we do is we tour the world searching for the best gms on earth the best game masters on earth and so we've been running this event for years and years and years uh since 2010 and we give away like thirty thousand dollars in yeah. prizes at, at Gen the Con, at the World yeah. Championship, else like 12000 to 15000 at each regional semifinal. And we just do this with really no profit. Like if we come out only $50 behind at the end of the year, we high five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. way to go, bro. But that's built up an, a great blood between us and the gaming community. And we have a lot of support behind us, and we're certainly going to need yeah. more. So, so now that we're going into publishing for the first time, the ability to rely on the generosity and help of, of the fans that we built up, that's that's very comforting. <laughs> that's and, very and, and the pro, and the other publishers right. like Paizo, who are a lot of their sure. writers are writing for us, you know, which is really generous. And and I don't think these guys would necessarily just take any any assignment, you know, offered to them. It's it's just because we've we've all become friends, and it's all for gaming. So just real good vibe all around. Yeah. When are you guys aiming to get this on Kickstarter? Early February. He's right. Early February. Yeah, we're going to need time. <laughs> we're going to need time because with celebrities involved, you write to them and say, could you do this? And sometime later, they write back to you and say, yes. And could you do this interview? Or could you do this? Or could you draw a picture of a puppy? And they go, yes, two weeks later, three weeks later. Right? right. So we definitely need that time to be able to field all of the help they can give us on their schedules. Yeah, they're, they're ever so slightly busy. Yeah. yeah. So, so celebrities are like... Every person ever who just irritatingly never gets back to you on email? There's no. nothing the least bit irritating about the great Dr. Wesley Snipes and the unbelievable, phenomenal, superlative in every way, Sean Astin. No, it's not irritating at all. It's just there's, you know, at that level of accomplishment, you have so many calls on your time and so many people who want things from you. The fact that they're excited enough about Grimmer Space to be willing to put in the time for us is fantastic. It just means we got to work around their schedule. Yeah, and this is a project to love for them. We are not millionaires giving them a million dollars for a little <laughs> RPG game. That's yeah. not happening. Okay, well, we'll have to look for Grimmer Space on Kickstarter in February. Yeah, you, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much, Chris. And now I'm at PAX Unplugged with Brennan Noonan of Game Salute, and I am looking at this 
gorgeous poster of spaceships taking off for a game called Farlight. What is that about? Yeah, so Farlight is our newest release. Uh, it's designed by Nick Savicki, the same designer as King's Forge. Uh, some of you may know that one. It is a blind bidding fixed auction game, which also has elements of bluffing, as well as some tableau building. People familiar with Galaxy Truckers uh, will probably find uh, the shipbuilding element uh, pretty familiar. Does your ship in Farlight also inevitably fall apart? Uh, that is, <laughs> that means you lose the game if that happens. But no, uh, your ship is not supposed to fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> so, so not real time then, I'm guessing. Not real time, no. That's good. I, I think I always did better in Galaxy Trucker with the not real time variant that no right. one ever plays. Sure. <laughs> uh, so we have uh, Farlight, which we're giving demos of. And we also have our uh, exclusive launch pack that goes along with that. Um, that's a convention promo. Um, and then we also have our Polyhero Wizard Dice, uh, which we're presenting for the first time, which is super exciting. That was funded on Kickstarter probably about a year ago, and it just started delivering to backers this week. Uh, so we're super happy about that. Um, we're not selling it at this convention, um, but we have uh, a few sets on display where people can stop by, uh, give them a roll or a spin, depending on which dice you get. Um, <laughs> there are spinning dice in there. And we're also taking pre-orders for those. Okay, yeah, now I see that the Farlight demos are set up next to another space-themed game, Planetarium, and I know that, that came out earlier this year, it right? Did. Yeah, so Planetarium came out um, this summer, I believe, and that's a game about uh, the birth of the solar system, and you are um, crashing planets into matter and um, making habitable planets or non-habitable gaseous planets, uh, so that's a really fun one, and that's um, Stefan Bachon is the designer. Okay, you mentioned one, I know you guys... Uh, of a history on, on Kickstarter. Do you have anything coming up on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we sure do. Um, in January, we're going to be launching um, a brand new title called Everdell. Um, it's a worker placement game, which also has um, some city building, um, some drafting as well. Um, so definitely keep an eye out for that one. Um, it's going to be just an absolutely beautiful game. We're really excited about it. Uh, we're trying a lot of cool things with making um, like some 3D elements on the board. Uh, so that will be very unique. And uh, really excited to see how that shapes up. So Everdell, that's definitely not spaceships. Are there wizards or is it just, just more like rustic village? It is uh, cute, cuddly woodland creatures. <laughs> <laughs> do, do I want to know what kind of cute, cuddly woodland creatures you are? Uh, like mice and um, badgers and rabbits and foxes, things like that. Yeah. Okay. So that's Farlight that's out now. Everdell that will be coming to Kickstarter in January. And... And if you want to pick up one of those convention promos for Farlight, you can go on eBay because you're clearly not there. <laughs> well, maybe some people just wanted to relive the experience. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice talking to you. All right, thank you. After that, I took a visit to the Iron Mark booth, which you will see is the first of two times that Iron Mark <laughs> appears in this day of mine at PAX Unplugged. All right, I'm here with Elise Sylvester of Iron Mark Games, and we just had a chance to look at uh, a couple of cool little, very small box games. You want to tell us about those? Sure. Um, our first game, which we kick-started last year, is called Sani Ichi. It is a 15-minute ninja card battle game for three to six players. Um, so it's a really fast, cool, trick-taking game that's based on ninjas using these elemental attacks and specialized weapons in order to do damage to each other. The game goes really quickly, and we find it's an awesome filler in between other games with some really great graphics, and we really love making ninja noises. So we're very excited for Sani Ichi. And then kickstarting this May is going to be the dual point of honor. Uh, this is a... 
fencing game um, with some really amazing robot graphics. Uh, it's a back and forth, uh, attack, defend, kind of keep on keep you on your toes card game that lasts three rounds and you're fighting for prestige and to not be fatally wounded. <laughs> so we've been having a lot of fun playtesting it here and at other conventions, so we feel like it's really shaping up and to be something awesome. <laughs> nice talking to you, Elise. Thank you very much. I'm here with Stephen Gordon at the 2C Gaming booth. Now, you guys publish stuff, but you also run a couple of distinctive convention uh, role-playing game sessions. Uh, can you tell us about those? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we run a lot of Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition game events. We uh, at, the, at PAX Unplugged this year and at a couple of conventions in the past, we've been running what we call the Total Party Kill Tournament. And we recently started theming it after, uh, we call it Let's Kill Strahd. And so the goal is to take the villain Strahd from the adventure Curse of Strahd, and the players run through a couple of warm-up encounters, they have a chance to pick up a few bonuses they can use in the final battle, and then they go against Strahd. And they, they try to win, but most of the time the groups die, as you might guess from the name of the tournament, <laughs> and uh, the group that does the most damage to him is crowned the winning team. So, you know, everybody picks from pre-made characters so that everybody's on even footing, and you win or lose as a team to kind of preserve the cooperative spirit of Dungeons & Dragons. And we give out prizes that are some of our products. We've done, like, dealer dollars. We've done cash, you know. So basically it's just uh, an opportunity for the DMs to really cut loose, you know, and, and be as brutal as they can be, and for the players to go in expecting that and really enjoy being put through the ringer. Hey, I see you have the Total Party Kill handbook here. I was kind of wondering, how, how literally is the DM supposed to take that title? So it kind of depends, uh, which I realize is dodging the question. Um, but the, uh, the sort of main feature that we're really proud of in that book is the scaling options, where you know we can adjust the encounters, we can adjust the level that they're for, which is adjusting the numbers, the monsters, and their stats, which is pretty normal. But we also have scaling by tactics, which just changes how smart the monsters are. So the tactics go easy, normal, hard, and lethal. You know, and so it's the difference on easy, the monsters will just like run at the fighter and smack against his armor uselessly. Whereas on lethal, you know, one of them will turn invisible, sneak behind the party, you know, start strangling the wizard so he can't cast any spells. They're just a lot more clever. And on lethal difficulty, that's where the name of the book comes from. Yeah, so it's like those GMs that were like, oh, of course all of the archers would target the cleric. Uh. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and so we, we wanted to make sure that the DM could choose to do that. If they've got, like, a really power gaming group who is just shredding every encounter they throw at them, then they want a challenge. So you run Lethal Difficulty for them. But, you know, if you're playing with less experienced players, you can run it on normal or even easy, and it'll still be a challenge, but it won't be unfair for them. <laughs> so, and that's already out, but I think is you have another book called Epic Legacy, and is that upcoming still? Yeah, so Epic Legacy is uh, on Kickstarter right now, in fact. It's already passed its funding. It's already passed its first stretch goal. Uh, it's basically adding level 21 to 30 to 5th edition D&D. So we're extending all 12 classes up to 30, so 10 more levels of progression with new abilities. We're adding new epic feats, new epic spells, and, of course, new epic monsters for the DMs to deal with how much more powerful players have become. Uh, and a lot of systems as well to like up the challenge of lower level monsters so that they stay relevant when characters are a lot more powerful. And how much longer does that Kickstarter go on? It's until December 2nd is when that ends. Okay, thanks for talking to us. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm here with Jordan Richer of deckofmany.com, and so I would like to know if I buy one of your products, is there a chance that a clone comes out and kills me? 
We would love to promise that effect with every purchase, uh, but unfortunately we cannot. The cards shipping in, in February do contain a deck of many things, so if you're familiar at all with D&D, uh, we have made sure that that's actually magic, so it will ruin your life. That's a written guarantee. That was always a magic item. Like, oh, this is really cool, but... Man, you're like you're really uh, taking your life, literally taking your character's life in your hands. You might get free wishes. You might get your soul trapped in a gem in the nine hells, and your friends may or may not have to go and get you. So, <laughs> you know, I think it's worth the shot. Yeah, but now you have uh, your your stuff is more than just the here's the deck of many things. You have a lot of yeah. like here's stuff for the classes, here's stuff for the conditions. Yeah, it's a it's a reference set. So basically, monster cards with illustrations on the front with the stat blocks on the back. It's a full stat box. We're working within the open gaming license. So the goblin has the stats from that so, uh, system reference document. Uh, so they're the same as from the monster manual. It's really to help DMs clear up some space at the table. It's a way to kind of have multiple monsters in play at a time without having to flip back and forth in a book. You know, uh, The deck of many things was just a stretch goal part of the Kickstarter. I mean, we're borrowing from its name with the deck of many. When we were trying to think of what to call it, we were coming up with all these, the tome of monsters, all this kind of stuff. And then I realized the deck of many blank was the best way to detail all the books. <laughs> the deck of many conditions, the deck of many monsters, because that's what it is. So, yeah. But, you, yeah, the deck of many things is just a small piece. Say, when I was younger, there were certain products that I'm like, oh, I can't pay for that. I have no money. I've got lots of time. Now it's like, I don't have lots of money, but I have no time at all. Please sure. give me anything that I can use to make running this game easier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've been a DM for since I was 15, uh, which I won't tell you how long ago that is. But, uh, you know, I remember making recipe card notes of all of the monsters. I mean, I still did it up until I did, started on this project, right? So uh, I get it. It's a, it's a thing that people find handy, and, and the response has been great. The Kickstarter went really well, so we're looking forward to expanding it further. Yeah, and now audio is a terrible format to discuss illustration with, but did you personally illustrate everything? Or? Uh, yeah, about 90% of the art was drawn by me. Uh, if you're looking at the website or anything like that, it's the more animated kind of cartoony art is, is mine. During the Kickstarter for the Stretch Goals, we did get a few uh, Wizards of the Coast artists actually helping us out. Uh, Thomas Baxa did a Pit Fiend for us. Peter Morbacher did a Lich. All of the big boss monsters were illustrated by Wizards of the Coast pros. I'm a pro, but it's more in the cartoon business as opposed to the <laughs> you know the fancy uh, painting business. But uh, yeah, I'm the main illustrator behind the project. My boss liked the idea, and that worked great for me because I get to draw goblins all day. So how many people get to say that? So you have I know there's there's conditions. You mentioned there's monsters. Are there things like spell and ability cards there's, for the classes? There's weapon cards uh, and NPC cards. NPCs are kind of monsters, but we consider them a little bit of a separate deck. And there are three decks of monsters. The, the main, if you were to, say, pre-order with us at PAX Unplugged this weekend, uh, you would be getting seven decks in, in February. Three decks of monsters, one deck of NPCs, the conditions would contain, which contain all the conditions from the game, and they're actually double-sided so that we could provide you with a, enough to have multiple players having the same conditions, because I knew that was something that was mattering to me. <laughs> if one person's getting poisoned, probably another person's getting poisoned. So, you know, you want to be able to pass those out. And then there is the deck of weapons. Uh, we are looking to kind of expand into other things. Like a lot of people requested magic items and to have a randomizable deck, you know, a shuffleable deck. So uh, I'm not... I'm not saying that's a guarantee, but but it's something that we're aiming for in the future, yeah. Okay, yeah. but but at the so right now, if somebody wanted to go on deckofmenu.com and they can pre-order, I mean, I, I know I, 
not whatever you get for pre-ordering at PAX, but they yeah. could still pre-order and get those in February, you said? Yeah, it's uh, thedeckofmany.com, and uh, yeah, you have options. You can buy just one pack if you want. They're $16 each, but for 50 bucks you get all seven, and that includes all stretch goals, and even some stretch goals we didn't meet in the form of uh, extra art from those uh, Wizards of the Coast artists. So we're throwing in a bunch of extra cards, and uh, even blank cards, actually. It's something I haven't mentioned a lot, but... Uh, like uh, fillable cards so that you can write your own monster and stats and stuff in them. Uh, so basically, every deck contains 35 cards, and even if there's only 25 actual cards in it, we'll fill out the rest with planks so that you can come up with your own stuff because homebrew is the way to go as far as DD is concerned. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in that little box. So, okay, it's been nice talking to you. Yeah, for sure. Thank nice. you very much, Chris. Thanks. So, then my last interview on Friday was for the upcoming Settlers of Catan virtual reality game, which is initially going to be available on, I think, the Oculus Rift and the Samsung Play. Uh, It should be going into uh, an open beta in the very near future. And so I got to play what I guess technically is, that technically makes what I played an alpha version, if the open beta hasn't started. Or maybe it's a beta and it's just in closed beta. Who really cares? Could be. But I think they they did a really good job on this one. It it really did. And I I don't really do VR, so this was me going in and having to learn the interface for the Oculus Rift in addition to having to learn the interface that was going on with this particular game. And it was really easy to get. It really simulated what was going on what you know what you would expect to be going on in a game you get that sense of looking at the players at the table around you they've set it up so you can easily tell like who is an ai player and who is a human player you know you've got the sort of thing like in the real game you'd look across you'd look look over to your right and look at the player to see like how many cards they had in the hand and how many knights they had sitting out in front of them and you know you look in exactly that same sort of place here on the oh. virtual thing it was in some sort of wooden hall, you know, medieval hall. So you could look, if you looked off to your right out the window, you could see the, the, the you know, the scenery outside is basically the cover of the game. You know, a simulation yeah. of the the, the mountain in there. Yeah. Do they have the very important tabletop simulator ability to, when you get sick of the game, flip, literally flip the table and send all the pieces scattering? I'm not aware <laughs> of anything that lets you literally flip the table. You can move the table up and down. You know, I don't don't really want to whine too much, but I have some neck issues, and so I had to be like, okay, I'm looking down at the table. Is there any way I can do something where, like, I don't have to be looking down to see the table? And they're like, yep, and you could, like, lift the table up to change the height of the table to fix that sort of thing. And this is VR only, though, because there are existing licenses for normal digital implementations of Catan, Actually, I think, did they just release, uh, like, Catan Universe or something? Just a normal, like, an iOS app kind of version of Catan as well? So, I didn't, they, I'm saying Asmodee Digital, I'm talking broadly. They're different companies that make these these different implementations. So, I found this particular VR implementation of a board game to be significantly easier to, to understand and interact with easily than the the last time I, I tried one of these. So they, they seem to have done a good job with that. So that took me through to the end to, to the end of the expo hall hours and 
because this is what I a thing I do now at every large gathering of geeks. I then went and did a math trade, of course. Because <laughs> of course you did, yeah. Oh yeah, where I actually traded for I not in not this was not planned, but amongst the items that I traded for at the math trade were the five to six player extension for Settlers of Catan. Or I guess it's just Catan. Well, it's just Catan now, but the ones I was trading for match my copy of the game, which is when it was still Settlers of Catan. Mm-hmm. I don't think it matters. It's, it's the identical components that just happened to be. But I got Settlers of Catan, the 5-6 to six player extension, and then Seafarers of Catan. So I, I beefed things up on that front. I also, weirdly enough, traded for a copy of a game that I had previously traded away in a math trade. <laughs> Funny how that happens sometimes. I traded away a copy of Dead of Winter at Gen Con because I got enough for it that I thought it was worth trading. And then I traded back for one at PAX Unplugged. So I have Dead of Winter again. (laughs) So it goes. So it goes. The endless circle of life. The circle of games. (laughs) Well, and there are, there's lots of circles involved in these. If you haven't done a math trade and you probably haven't, because let's face it, it's, more obscure than a lot of the, you know, than say, I like this science fiction author. Mm. They run these trades online, and you basically have a list of these are the things I want, and then other people have their lists, and then they have this automated software where you can go in and say, basically what your, you can either individually say I'm willing to trade this game of mine for all these other ones, or you can, or you can do what makes it a lot easier, and you can assign them values what I will do is I will assign my game's values of like 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, the odd numbers, and then I'll look at the games that I want, and then I'll assign them like 2, 4, 6, 8, and then it'll automatically say you're willing to trade for anything that is a higher value, like, you know, by how you've numbered it. And then it, it runs an algorithm to, to try to maximize the number of trades that occur, and then it all swaps around. There are shipping math trades as well, but that adds a lot of friction cost from the shipping. So I, I, I really like them when you get to, to do it at the convention. And so the, the final thing I did on, on Friday night was The World Turned Upside Down, which is a mega game run by Ironmark Games. So uh, you heard from them in the booth with some of the, a couple of the small box games that they have. Uh, this is sort of the opposite. This is a no box game, right? And The World Turned Upside Down is an American Revolution-themed mega game. So there are, I guess, 14, I'll call them delegations. You know, there's one for each of the states, and then, or then the colonies at the time, and then one for the, the British Empire. I think this might have been the biggest time they've ever done, because we actually filled out every single slot. It turned out that they they had advertised this beforehand, and before the convention, you could sign up to participate, and you could actually try. You could you wouldn't necessarily get it, but you could pre-request a particular character that you wanted to be, and they had. Oh, and let me note that that's one of the other. There's another nice. This is a positive difference between PAX Unplugged and Gen Con. Most of the events are free. Mm-hmm. Right, Gen Con, they have to charge you for everything because Gen Con gets the first two bucks. Like they, even if it's a, a, com- a an event that the company is getting nothing for, they have to. You have to have gotten a ticket or have a generic where Gen Con gets their their cut. But for this, like almost everything at PAX was free. I mean, you know, once you got in, 
including this. I mean, I can't imagine that they would have a big event like this at Gen Con without like putting a significant price tag on it. Anyhow, so they had, I think, I think it was 12 people pre-registered. And so I guess they were worried that maybe this just isn't the right place for this. Maybe there aren't going to be enough people interested. And when they opened it up for signups on Friday morning, they not only filled up every single spot, they had like 60 people on the wait list. Wow. Uh, so, you know, you showed up at seven on Friday night and the people who were on the list, you know, they called them there and then, it, you know, it was like, okay, you know, if we have five people who didn't show up, let's take the five people off the wait list to get in. And, uh, and that's, that's that. Okay. So I had a good time with this. It's, it's divided into three sections. Basically there's a gigantic map where people who have been chosen to be generals are engaging in military conflict. There's a big long table where they have what is called the spy game. <laughs> and the the spy game basically involves the two sides competing to try to grab resources across the colonies, and whatever resources they generate will then be handed back over to their respective state governments or the British Empire to use for the military and, and whatever else. Uh, and then there is a political element to it where right there's a Continental Congress that votes on various things, including when ultimately they declare independence. And then there's the British Parliament back there. So I was on the British side because I thought it would be interesting to like be the opposing force, basically. Like, there's 13 teams doing this thing. There's one right. team doing that thing. Let's try that one. I kind of wish I hadn't. I had fun, but I think that the British side of it might have been a bit underdeveloped. Hmm. I think this may have been the first time they actually had a full British side. And so right there were 15 of us. And I don't know it, it the, the size of the delegations depended on the state, but you know, there were f five to 10 ish people for each of the state delegations. And so the, the States, like every state sent somebody to the continental Congress, every state sent somebody to the spy game, every state sent somebody to be a general, and then when they kind of wrap up the the first half of each year, everybody but the generals could like go back and report to their state on what had been happening. For the Brits, right, I did the spy game the whole time, and so like for the first half of the turn, you'd be active doing the spy game, and then for the second half of the term, you didn't really have anything to do because the king and the handful of people who we could afford to leave in parliament. I don't even know what the parliament people did all game. I'm not, they did things, but I don't know what it was because you just like, there's an information flow barrier for the British because you're either in England or you're in the colonies. Mm -mm. And so for the spy game, it was sort of like, well, after a few rounds, like, okay, I've, the, the spy game didn't, doesn't really evolve much over the course of the thing. We also collectively broke the spy game a couple of times <laughs> I, no i mean they, they they literally had to change the rules for the spy game twice wow because i just don't like i said i don't think that it had been pushed in that way before by these these large groups of people really going and you know both sides kind of realize that based on the rules and based on the actions available, there's a particular way that's like the right way to do this, especially if you're, you're the American. So the Americans, I actually don't know if it's designed for it to be possible for the British to win or not. 
My guess is it's not, but I'm not sure. I mean, you're you're outnumbered two to one in the spy game. You're outnumbered two to one on the military board. You're outnumbered in the politics. I don't know if that matters. But the the Americans have a lot more ability to do abusive things if they figure out like a hole in the rules. So I think it was really fun to do, and I would suggest doing it if you have the chance to do it at a future. Because I'm I'm guessing that they'll polish some of these things up up a bit. So that was the world turned upside down mega game, uh, which was run by Ironmark Games. Uh, on and that and that wraps up my Friday at PAX. I, I got back on the regional rail and got very sleepy. Mm. Did you do anything on Saturday before the big event? Breakfast. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I will say one of the, the best things about the this PAX is, so there's the convention center and right next door, I don't know if you found it too, there was this farmer's market with like 80 different stalls and just delicious food in every single one of them. And I think most of my meals were, were at one booth or another in there. Yeah, I wish I had noticed exactly where that was earlier. Because actually, I had I had no real food on Friday. Mm. Part of my problem on Friday for that, I mean, like, it didn't matter what I knew. From 10 in the morning until, like, 11 o'clock at night, I did not stop. I was fully booked out. Yeah. So on Saturday, I'm like, okay, we're we need to go get some real food. So I went off. I and ultimately is actually the opposite direction from where that is. So I'm I'm you know walking around the streets. Almost everywhere is still closed because of how early it is. It was freezing on Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. It was pretty temperate by the time you got to Saturday evening, but it was freezing on Saturday morning. And I felt so bad, but I finally just walked into a Taco Bell because it was open. <laughs> so I I traveled to another city and had Taco Bell for breakfast in the morning. And I like Taco Bell fine, but like I, you know, yeah, you like wanna, to get you some kind try of local color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so on Saturday at PAX Unplugged was the first ever, well, Cote of any kind, uh, but also the first grand Cote for the Legend of the Five Rings LCG, and it was huge. There were 250-ish people. Ultimately, there were they had almost 210 pre-registered for the Grand Cote. So this is Chuta Raichi, uh, Ryan Caritas on Facebook. It's great here to be traveling again to Kotai's. A lot of people, I think we're low 200s, that's awesome. You know, so you need to get out to these things. It's fun. Uh, and make sure to practice online. Uh, Jigoku Online is a great site for it. And it was done in two stages. Basically, you play four rounds, and then they they just kind of say, okay, well, we're going to... We're done. Like, anybody who is doing really badly is you're just done now. Instead of... I mean, normally in a Swiss tournament, like, people who are 0-4 can just keep on playing, because why not? But for this, I I was kind of like, you know, go go do something else. Enjoy yourself. There's a whole convention. Yeah. And then there was a lunch break, and then there was the... So that was the samurai round, and then there was the magistrate round. Technically, it was the samurai tournament, and then the magistrate tournament. And the the magistrate tournament was effectively rounds five, six, and seven of mm-hmm. the tournament. So how did your first Grand Cote go, Jay? I mean, I had fun. 
to give you an idea of of how the the day went, though, my Palmer was my first round opponent. And this is the it was at the Palmers. It's one of the sixth ring guys, and he was a uh, a long standing prominent player in the original L five R. Yeah, so uh, he well. knows what he's doing, and yeah, he he trounced me fairly well for that first round, and then I think the second round I played against a Scorpion player, where combining early, I bid a little too aggressively with my hand. And then I, I was trying, thought I was doing okay with honor. And then the, what ended up being the last round, I suddenly found myself with more people dishonored than I had honor left. <laughs> so that that was not good. Yeah. So yeah, I I ended up two and two out of that first chunk. So that's good enough to go to the magistrate round, which. Basically, I played one round of the Magistrate round because there's more price support for playing in the Magistrate round, but that was that was it. I was done at that point. You uh, competed for the the honor and the glory of the Phoenix, I, I, I think we can safely assume. Yes, yes, I was playing Phoenix. I, I'm going to guess you were Dragon. I was Dragon. I've been doing it for 20 years now. I, why stop now? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I played in the the Grand Cote uh, as well, of course. And this was, to be clear, this this was one of the the few events that actually did have a cost to participate. You got some nice stuff. You got a, a Grand Cote playmat. You got a pin. I hear pins are a big thing. Although this was not a it was a pin, but it was not a penny arcade pin. No, so so you can't trade it with the other penny arcade people. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess you could, but they probably don't want it. Uh, <laughs> but there, yeah. So there was a pin. You got a set of the seal of the X clan for whatever clan you were playing. So you got enough that you could have a playset for yourself, and then you could trade one each round with your opponent. So you know, here's a. I'll trade my way of the not way of the dragon. I'll trade my seal of the dragon for a seal of the scorpion or, or phoenix or whatever. I did start off playing. My first round game was against uh, Chestnut. He was playing Phoenix. And actually, and one of the other things I do, there will be interviews with this too. So for my opponents who are interested when I do these tournaments, I say, hey, do you want to uh, you know, you want to say anything for the podcast? Sometimes they don't. Often they do. And it's always gratifying. And I appreciate it when people come up to me and say, hey, I listen to the podcast. I've actually had people say, I'm playing this game because of because I listened to your podcast about it earlier in the year. So that's the best thing ever, right? Yeah. <laughs> I <mean. laughs> yeah. So I think in the... Well, like, card advantage is a thing here. And so my game against Trevor was one of those games where you end up in a position where their honor isn't great, and you've got card advantage, and so you can start just bidding one. Mm-hmm. Like, I got my spy glasses going, he didn't, or something like that. We were both splashing Unicorn. Poor Unicorn. <laughs> yeah. And I was just able to kind of ride that to have, like, my hand is pretty full despite the fact that I'm bidding one, and you can't bid a lot, or else you'll get dishonored out. 
Hi, this is Trent Chestnut. We just played the first round, and Chris won't whoop me. <laughs> All right. Well, yay! You have to have something more to say here at the first Grand Cote ever. You played. You were in the first round of the first Grand Cote ever. You got to have something else to say. Um, or maybe yay is just enough. I'm very excited to be here. And I'm meeting a lot of cool people. <laughs> okay. There are lots of cool people who play L5R LCG. In fact, studies show that if you start playing the L5R LCG, it makes you cooler. Right there. Absolutely. I can, I can feel it. It's happening right now. <laughs> uh, having won my first round, I played against Kyle. And randomly, I ended up on the stream... So table one was the table that got streamed. And so at the end of the first round, the right there were about 125 or so people who were 1-0, and o, and I randomly was one of the two that was at table one. There were actually some issues with the stream, so I'm not sure how much, if any, of the match actually ended up going. And I kind of hope it didn't, because I will admit, despite the fact that I've doing this podcast for hundreds of hours and for quite a few years being thrown up on the stream was very nerve inducing and I played quite badly neither of our play was was exactly sharp in that game but I, there were some boneheady things like I, I think that literally he ran into both of my fire provinces and I didn't take the fate off of either of them Ooh, yeah and it's one of those things where, like, you kind of start off badly, and then you've realized you've been screwing it up, and then it throws you off even more. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. unsurprisingly, I lost that one. I think we may have also delayed things a little bit. That was one of the nice things. I thought at this tournament that they it took a while to get going. It took too long for the first round to get started. I thought that they kept the tournament flowing as well as can be a can with one can do with an L5R tournament. I mean, it's 60 minute rounds and whatever one match goes to time and needs to play to finish it off, like that dictates how long everyone had to wait, but I think that once they had the and they being Cascade Games who was running this, uh once they had all of the results in, the pairings for the next round were up pretty quickly. So I think we may have been hanging it up on this one because like, the streaming area was really separate. And so we just played until we were done and then we gave them our results and then very quickly after that they had the next pairings up and I'm like, were we the last ones? I don't know. I, like We had no clock over there in the streaming yeah. area. So, Alright, hi, I'm Kyle. Kyle Wislocki. We just finished round two. I played Chris. Hard-fought match that... Should have been on stream, but apparently the stream was cutting out. Um, I was able to pull it out in the end with a strong political showing from the crane. The con's been really great. Convention Center's a nice space. It's not that big. Not like a Gen Con in terms of scope, but um, still a lot of exhibitors, fun tournaments, you know, free demos, all that kind of stuff, promos. So it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've been doing a lot of L5R, but trying to explore the rest of the con in between rounds where I can. I did play yesterday in the Proving Grounds tournament. I think there were about 80 people. I uh, lost in the last round. I was 5-0 and and then went 5-1, and one, so I didn't get the free invitation to Worlds, which was a little bit of a letdown to have played all day. The uh, tournament hasn't been, like, the greatest in terms of how they've run it. Like, that one, we didn't get the first round until afternoon or right around noon, and then we, the last round ended at 8, and it was just six Swiss rounds. So I would have liked to see them move a little bit more quickly. 
I went to Worlds and for L5R Worlds, I think they were definitely more organized uh, in terms of getting things, uh, you know, getting people to their seats and getting the round started. So here it's like they call time and then you're sitting around for 15, 20 minutes, which is kind of cool because you're able to go and, and, you know, walk around the con. But yesterday I just wanted to get home and be well rested for this and everything else. So, yeah, I think that's it for now. Uh, we'll see how we how the rest of the day goes, how the rest of the tournament goes. Okay. Nice playing you. Nice playing you. So I was 1-1 at that point. In round three, I got paired against Brandon, who was rocking Crane, and picked up my third win. So at this point, I've got two full wins, so I know that I'm in to the magistrate round. But as you were saying, Jay, right, it, like there's kind of a, like if you were 2-2 and you had two full wins, you would make it into the magistrate round. But your chances of actually getting anywhere at that point were abysmal. Like you had to win out and then hope that your clan, you didn't have any clan mates who were doing particularly well. Right basically, which may be good odds if you're a unicorn. Or, you know, hang hang out and hope that your clan is doing most honorable and you get the honor tokens. Yeah, that was a possibility. You had to be able to stay around the whole seven rounds for that. Yes. So my fourth round was against Scorpion, and did you see the the, the breakdown on no, this? I... Like, a, was a third of the field Scorpion? Wow. I was expecting there to be a surge of Lion because Lion had won Worlds and the decklist was public, but there was a massive number of Scorpion players. But the first time I hit one was round four. Jesse, Scorpion splashing Dragon. Stop! Stop splashing Dragon! Stop playing Miramoto's Fury on me! Miramoto would be furious with you for playing well, Miramoto's Fury on a Dragon Stop player. being the best splash, then. <laughs> it's a pretty good card. It's a pretty good splash. Yeah, exactly. I think that until they do a good generic item meta card that's neutral, you're going to see a lot of Dragon Splash. Yeah. Let Go is good, but Mir- Miramoto's Fury is, is better. No, yeah. Miramoto's Fury is better, but for me, right now, I am splashing Dragon for Let Go and picking up Miramoto's Fury. If there was another item meta, I would be a lot more considering other splashes. I just... I cannot handle Cloud the Mind on Sukune Arcade. <laughs> yeah, and so this this was another very long... This was a long game. He got below on Honor, so we're both, we, were, we both spent a large part of the game in this world where we're only drawing one card a turn. He gets to draw two cards because he can steal an Honor back from me, and then I get to have my Ancestral Attachments come back and so refill my hand that way. I get him down to just his stronghold, and I cannot break it. Like, he can't get anywhere on my honor, but I, I'm i just not able to crack the stronghold. And this game was a real grinder. And at some point, like, a judge come over and goes, so, are you guys done yet? And we're like, what? Time got called? <laughs> Which I think was actually the, possibly the, there was this weird situation with electrical stuff at the Pennsylvania Convention Center, so they did not have any sort of loudspeaker for the tournament or microphone. So they had a mic, but they didn't have anywhere to plug it in. My guess is, because I ran into this myself trying to plug things in, is if you look around the walls at the Pennsylvania Convention Center, they're not normal plugs. They're like these funky specialty plugs. Right. My guess is, and I'm this is rank 
guess is that these specialty plugs are there so if you want to do electrical setups you have to go to the convention center and pay them to do that for you or help with that or you know make sure you can't just ad hoc do your own stuff i don't know but it was an inconvenience for anyone who would those times when you're like okay i've got 15 minutes to sit here can i plug in my phone (laughs) no you can't (laughs) which mattered more because again to go back to the gen con comparison there was actually functional working real honest to god free wi-fi unlike a gen con where you have to pay if you want wi-fi so I love Gen Con, but there were definitely there's definitely some charges that they they have in there. So I I managed to pull that one out because because then right the judge came over and we counted up the points and I was winning and so he he conceded because he was not going to be able to get out of it. Yeah, then we had the break for dinner and went to the magistrate round. I was three one. I had my three full wins at that point. I collected my full art cloud the mines, so I know what to. So I'll have those to play on your Sukune, okay, Jay? Okay, I'll have let go to play against it. Don't worry. Things that are mildly amusing to me, when Sukuni and Yakuni are out, so <laughs> he just copies her ability and whatever rings are left just get resolved over and over again. Yeah, always, <laughs> always fun, yes. Yeah, so when I came back from the Magistrate round, uh, I played against Nami and... He was also playing a Scorpion deck, and I lost this one. This is weird to say that, but there's like this turning point, I don't know, near the end of the first round, and you kind of look back, and I I got behind there and never really caught up. I mean, it took a while for the it actually to get all the way there, and I also died. I ended up conceding when I looked at my board, and I saw that I had more Dishonored guys. Mm-hmm. In fact, as many Dishonored guys as I had Honor left who were fading out that turn. I'm like, well, yeah. I'm not going to make us play out the rest of this round. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was that was my Scorpion experience, too. Was uh, I, I thought I was doing okay, keeping track of my honor, keeping it okay. And then at some point I realized, oh, wait, no. Number of Dishonored is more than my remaining honor total. I guess we're done here. Oh, yeah. Could, what'd you say? Oh, I didn't say something again. Ah, I'm sorry, I clicked draw. I, we're, 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 I'm a four I didn't do, do anything. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. I, I hit the drop, and then I'm like, okay, I'm done. Oh, right. it works. It works. Thank you. This, this is what L5R tournaments are like. We're just like scrambling to get round around. Yeah. Well, this is what happens when we go to time. Right? You're like, everything, yeah. We, I, I uh, lost this one, or I conceded this one right before the end of time. I mean, if we had gone to time, I would have conceded that. But, hey, uh, so why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, guys. Uh, I'm Nami Lee. Uh, I run an X-Wing podcast called The Kessel Run, but I'm also on the Carolina Crates. Uh, I just started playing L5R when it came out. I'm not an L5R player, um, but I had a great game today. Almost all of my opponents have been really fun to play with, and... Like, if there's anything I want to say, it's like, come out to these large events. Like, don't be scared. I started doing it this year, and I've loved it ever since. You meet, like, the most awesome people. Everyone's super nice. I've had the most fun I've had playing in a long time, just being here. And, like, I'm not saying that because I won all of them. It's just, like, I, after my last game, my opponent and I just hugged. We were so emotionally drained. We were like, holy I don't know. If, I don't know if you curse on your podcast. But, like, we do, but okay. that's okay. I that's okay. Remember. Holy like, oh, it, it was so cool. So, and I've met a ton of people. I've met five really awesome people. And guys, just come out, play. It doesn't matter how you do, you're going to have fun, I promise. And the prizes are awesome. Shout out to FFG. At that point, I was 3-2. There were other Dragon who were 5-0. So, right, I was I was not going to make the cut based on directly on record. I was not going to make the cut based on 
being top of clan or something with my clan having done badly. So I wrapped that up, and there was a little bit of time left before the hall closed, and I wasn't... It was it was too late to to start any new thing. I wasn't going to be able to to get over and and kick in and like D and D Adventurers League because man, the D and D Adventurers League stuff was slammed all weekend. Yeah, I guess you kind of forget about like again, you're like Gen Con is like Paizo City, but Penny Arcade does a lot of stuff with Dungeons and Dragons, and so that wasn't the only RPG there, obviously. But you wanted to get in line early to start signing up for. The, the D&D Adventurers League. So, but I, what I actually did is I, I sat down and played in a demo for Numenera, which I know may seem odd because I know how to play Numenera. Well, at least generally. I clearly don't play it on a weekly basis as could be, one could tell from the demo. I had to be like, yep. no, 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 you have to spend effort before you roll. Oh, yeah. Hello, this is Darcy Ross from Montecook Games. I'm their community relations coordinator, and we are having a frickin' blast at PAX Unplugged. Uh, we love the enthusiasm. We love the new kinds of crowds we're seeing. You know, this is hitting a really cool demographic. A lot of people who are newer to tabletop role-playing games, which makes us very, very happy. Uh, we've been filling every demo slot we've been running, so there's a lot of love for Numenera and uh, no Thank You Evil, our family game. But also just the, the atmosphere of the con has been fabulous. So we're hoping we come back. I think there's a lot of positivity about it. Um, and yeah, Philly's a great place to have a con. So we're enjoying enjoying this just to bits. <laughs> so I, I had some fun with that. It was just nifty. I think it, it worked out really well. Like for me, at least, I had this, you know, intense tournament play. And then... I got to go just play in this fun short RPG thing and then go eat real food for dinner and then get to bed at a normal sort of time. You know, none of this rolling, you know, rolling back in at midnight stuff, which will, I, I think, contribute significantly to the my buoyancy as I left PAX. But what did you head off and do after on, on Saturday after you were finished with the L5R tournament? Well, basically once I was done with the L5R tournament and I'd gotten all my prizes, I wandered about 10 feet over to the line for the main theater that was right behind the tournament area, and I went and I saw the Acquisitions Incorporated uh, session, which, for those of you who don't know, is the two guys, Mike and Jerry, who do pin the arcade, uh, plus Patrick Rothfuss again, the the fantasy author, and then I don't remember who she is other than she's on the C team, their regular Acquisitions Incorporated podcast. The four of them play Dungeons and Dragons in front of a giant crowd, and it is it is quite a spectacle to behold. There's lots of you know. These are people who know how to ham it up for the crowd, and they're doing silly things, and people are yelling and chanting and cheering, and I'm pretty sure it's all online if you want to check it out for yourself. I would recommend, if you ever get the opportunity to to see it live, it is quite the spectacle. Yeah, I'd say something like, this is why nobody wants to see us do an actual play, because I'm no good at (laughs) hamming it up. Although... There actually have been people who want us to do an actual play. I just don't think I'd be any good at it. 
Well, no. And, yeah, I, I, I know I wouldn't be any good at it. I would do it, but I wouldn't be good at it. And who, who can find the time these days? If they, well, if they were up there when they said, you know what, Jay, we need a fifth player. Come up on stage. You do it. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying about 10 minutes later, they'd be like, you know what? We've changed your, our mind. Go back to your seat. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I also wanted to, so I, I forgot to mention this earlier, but since we're in the milieu of what was going on on, let's call it the left side of the expo hall. So I would say that the foci of PAX Unplugged were really, I mean, one, like, so, like, there was this D&D Adventurers League. There was an expo hall of modest, uh, there was, a, like, the exhibitor area of modest size. But, but yeah, there was, there was definitely big lines for these, live, like, for the panels and for the live shows. Like, I don't think that was the only Acquisitions Incorporated thing no, that, that, was, that they that did. No, that was the main one, but they, they also have the C-team that I unfortunately slept through because that was Monday morning. That they did that. Yeah. Oh, Friday morning. No, it was Sunday morning. Oh, Sunday morning. Okay, you said yeah. Monday, so I didn't. Okay. When there was dice camera action too, but also there was just a lot of tournaments, and uh, you know, to me, I I heavily correlate tournament games with conventions, but usually it's it's like really specifically tournament games. It's things like the Legend of the Five Rings Grand Cote or. Magic the Gathering tournaments or X-Wing tournaments or, you know, these things that are really specifically designed as two-player competitive, play them over and over again, you know, in one day sorts of games. But there were also just a whole mess of, I think, free tournaments that you could play in. I, newer stuff like Clank, there's newer, lighter classic things like King of Tokyo, but there were also, like, Lahav. There was a Lahav tournament. There was an Agricola tournament, or at least one. Sure, I saw a Ticket to Ride tournament. Yeah, so you had the ability to, you know, if, if you have a game that you want to play repeatedly, you want to, and I don't, know if, I don't know what the prizes were, any of these things, but that was a, proportionally, I think, was a pretty significant presence. Now, that wasn't the only way you could play tabletop. They had... A thing where you could, you know, just check out games and your group could play and then bring them back. And that was, you know, with a library you could go. There were places that were set up. There was a, was it like early exposure area or something like that where you could play newer games off on the the side of the Skybridge Hall. Out, so outside of the main expo hall, there was a classic cardboard room where, again, there was there, there were games set up of, of older games. There was a Learn to play room where companies had brought in new games and were teaching them the people that one has a that one has a longer line because the games are hotter. Yeah. And then there was the mega game room and there was a game there was a room where they were uh, I it was, it was kind of like showing people how to do stuff. A lot of it was miniatures painting, but there were some other things in there. Yeah, the, the craft room. It, yeah, but but really, yeah, that no, I had no opportunity to participate in any of it, and I would have a hard time. I would have a hard time carving the time out of it out, out for it, frankly. But if you like that little tournament, but not oh hardcore, you have to have bought a bunch of the cards and customized your stuff. That was was definitely available as, as an option, uh, a strong option there at Packs Unplugged. So 
I'd ask you then what you did on your Sunday or how your Sunday started off, but apparently it started off by sleeping in. Yeah, slept in a little. Had to catch up from the early flight. Got to the con about noonish, and basically basically spent one last go around the exhibitor hall. Did a demo of Civ and got one of the pins they were handing penny arcade pins they were handing out for that, and then basically spent most of the afternoon doing tabletop library. As as you said, it's it's great. They've got a whole bunch of board games laid out. You just go, you grab one you like, you take it up, they check it out for you, you get to play it, you bring it back, you check out another one, and so yeah, they've just got all these different games that you can try out. Were you at the area, is that the one where, like, it was like a snake line, they had, like, these tables set up, and you kind of walked in between the tables, and the game were were generally alphabetized? Yes, that was it. Yeah, that was the tabletop library, you could just go and check out board games, and did that for several hours and then capped off with the my packs unplugged as I like to kick off to to finish off cap off all of my packs with the Omegathon. So going into detail on the Omegathon, for those who are not aware, it's become a tradition at all of the packs. So at, at the start of the weekend, they have randomly picked I think it's twenty people who have badges for the convention they get to be omega knots throughout the weekend there have been a series of different games happening during through the course of which they eliminate people such that for the finale there are two contenders left you have two omega knots remaining to play they're going to play some game what game it is is a big mystery until the actual events transpire. For this inaugural PAX Unplugged, the game that they played was Battleship. (laughs) It was amazing to watch. Yeah, exactly. You have two people up on stage playing. I think they had found, like, one of the copies from, like, the 70s, where it was the, you know, classic old one the old box art, they were just sitting on stage playing Battleship against each other. Be like, uh, B3, miss! And the boat's at, like, B4, and parts of the crowd's like, ooh! And the embassies are like, no, helping! <laughs> so, yeah. That, and then, of, of course, so, it's the two, the winner gets, as as the embassies like to say, the, the prize, the grand prize, is you get to go to full expense paid trip to whichever PAX Australia in the world that you want to go to. <laughs> yes, that would be a, a heck of a trip to win. Yes. Maybe if we run a Kickstarter, people will like, you think people would kick in for Chris and Jay, Strange Assembly covers <laughs> PAX Australia? No? Uh, Worth a try. Worst case scenario, we get like twenty bucks, and we can go out, go get a, <laughs> go stand on our heads and pretend. I don't know. <laughs> you don't get to keep the twenty bucks, Jay. No. You only you only get to keep the money if it actually funds. <laughs> well, darn. I have not priced it out, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's more than twenty bucks. <laughs> I would imagine yes. Yes. I don't think twenty bucks covers the badges. <laughs> no, no, it would it would not. Oh, did, did you did you get all of the sixteen XP? Did you find them all? 
I did, yes, and I got the picture, and I turned it in at the info booth, and I got my PAX XP fidget spinner. Ooh. Yeah, the coveted. Who who wouldn't want a PAX XP fidget spinner? I would make some comment about how I wouldn't want one, but I could give it to one of my kids, so actually that would have been, that would work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, the whole kid family thing expands the range of, of games that you're interested in or the ways that you're interested in playing them mm-hmm. because if I go out and I'm just you know playing with the usual uh, our, our usual geeks and such you're geeks and sundry <laughs> yes geeks and sundry I, I don't actually get to play with them Jay no. it turns out um, yes but right you know I, I you know I'm by default probably going to gravitate to people who have themselves default to the same sorts of games that I do. Yeah. So some of that is is the tournament style stuff. Some of that is is heavier things, and and just ways of playing too. Like if I didn't have kids, I probably would need to keep like Camel up around. And I've got Imperial Assault, and my seven year old has really wanted to play Imperial Assault. Well, that's kind of beyond a seven year old. Yeah, if you play it the right way. Yes. And if you play it with just me and the seven-year-old, like, it's a head-to-head competitive game. Yeah. And I just have kind of not want to deal with that. So, But Fantasy Flight just announced that they're going to be coming out with a, a an Imperial Assault equivalent of the, like, the Descent Road to Legend app, where you can use the app to play it full co-op. So that's really exciting because now I will actually have a way to much more readily play Imperial Assault with a seven-year-old. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> now we can be on the same team. Now it's a lot easier to like work together or give suggestions or do that sort of thing. He even likes playing Mansions of Madness. I don't know how much he really gets anything about the notions of what's going on in Mansions of Madness. But, <laughs> hey, <laughs> he likes playing it. I'll take what I can get. So my Sunday also opened up with something which was in your Sunday. And I decided I, I had originally planned on trying to do the D&D stuff on Sunday morning. But it had been so busy on Saturday. I'm like, nah, let's kind of pass on that. Especially since like I don't do D&D Adventures League all the time and I'm like man it's it might get a little intense in here I, I don't somebody's gonna get mad at me because I don't make the optimal move with my uh, palette in here so yeah I actually <laughs> yeah I actually have uh, I don't know if I've done this before I have a paladin designed based on a miniature I had a hero forge I think it was miniature from Gen Con and then they came like who's this this fighter type guy with these spiky armor and a big spiky shield and then in Xanathar's Guide to Everything the most recent Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition book the one of the paladin oaths is the oath of conquest <laughs> I'm like that worked really well with this figure so that's that was the guy I had to play I'm like I don't know. that's right that's go. what we're going to go on and take take your inspiration where you get it but instead of doing that I I had not really had the chance to wander around the expo hall. I had been in the expo hall for four hours 
Friday, but it had been doing these interviews. And I had that again on Sunday afternoon. So I went into the expo hall on Friday morning, and the number one thing that I wanted to do, like to, to get, like I want to make sure to get this place, was also Civilization, uh, uh, Sid Meier's Civilization, New Dawn. Because I like Civ games, generally not, I mean, I like Sid Meier's Civilization game, but there's a lot of good Civilization games that I like. Yeah. And that's actually part of the reason why I wanted to do the demo, because there's a lot of good Civilization games. Not only are there a lot of good Civilization games, there are multiple existing Sid Meier's Civilization game, including one by that's also by Fantasy Flight. So there are some games where I like like the joke we made about Battle of Battle for Rokugan, the the Legend of the Five Rings branded board game that's coming out soon. Like I'm just going to buy that. Yeah there's less of a value to me to try to demo because I'm just going to buy it anyway. But A New Dawn, I'm like, well, you know, I want to try this out because it's not like I don't already have a Civ game. So I sat around to do that, and yes, I was... I don't know how many you have. You may have many, but this was my first Penny Arcade pin. It was the Legend of the Five Rings Penny Arcade pin. So if you've played Civilization, you like you know what the theme and the concept of the game is. But they they have a really... I thought this was a different way of, of running the mechanics of the game and in a way that actually gives it something doing... You know, it's doing something interesting that you would not get in some other random civilization-themed game that's already out there. And the turns whip around pretty quickly once people know what they're doing. Yeah, You have five different actions that you can take on your turn. It's basically like advanced technology, move your caravans, put new control markers out on the board, build a new thing like a new city or a wonder, or military, which can be either doing attacks or reinforcing your control markers so they're effective defensively rather than just showing control. And you have these five things in a row and whenever you take an action, it goes all the way down to the bottom to number one. Everything that it just passed over goes up. And the actions are stronger when they're higher up. So it, all the things being equal, it encourages you to spread out your actions. So you're taking them, you, instead of just going military, 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 like that's not going to get you very far. You need to change it up doing other things. Right. You almost want to just always do whatever's in the fifth spot, but then you, if you do that, you realize, oh no, I, I didn't need to wait for this to percolate all the way up. It was perfectly fine down at the three. I really like that mechanic. I think that is a clever way of rewarding patience while not punishing you for acting when you need to. Yeah, there, there are times when you need something to be up to five to do what you want to do with it. And there are times when using it at a three is just fine. I could see that coming up a lot with the caravans, for example. Yeah. Because each of the levels is correlated with a terrain type. Like, there are five types of terrain, and each of them essentially has a a difficulty, I think. Maybe is what they call it. I don't know. Yeah. A number. Yes. Number one to five. And so there will be things like when you're building a new city... 
you can only build a city on a terrain type of a difficulty equal to or lower than the number. So if you want to build a city on a grassland, you can use that action when it's still at one. But if you want to build a city up in the mountains, which will make it much stronger defensively, if it ever gets attacked, you need to have the city thing up at a five. It's shorter than other a lot of the other Sid Meier's Civilization games. I think it's supposed to be playable in under two hours. Now, that's that's not me personally speaking. I know that there's uh, a long-standing issue with whether or not the officially stated time actually matches up to reality, but it's supposed to be playable in, two, right. in, in, in less than two hours. But yeah, so I think that was actually something distinctive and worth checking out about Civilization, A, a New Dawn, and it, it sounded like you thought that as well, Jay? Yeah. So I did that demo, and then I hit up a couple, and this is part of the reason why I, I just went to the uh, expo hall instead of the RPGs, and then I hit up a few other places where I had, like there were people who, there was a possibility of doing an interview, but there hadn't been time to schedule one. And then I was able to walk around the whole, the whole exhibit hall and then go into my afternoon schedule, which is another thing that's interesting. Like, so there were, right, there were, there were little tiny companies there. There were, you know, big AAA companies like such as, you know, Fantasy Flight slash Asmodee. But it was actually possible given the size and the crowd, you could walk through the entire exhibit hall in less than an hour. Mm-hmm. Now, that's obviously not walking through and stopping and getting demos of things. Right. It's just walking through and seeing everything that is to be seen there. Yeah. So it, it was a much more manageable thing to do. And it also, it, you know, it, it if, if you're going and you want to make sure that you have, you, you know, you see everything in the from the exhibitors. But you have other things that you want to do. You can You can, like, accomplish that goal without eating up lots of of other time so now we're going to go and like we did on the episode we're going to throw this to the interviews and then uh jay and i will be back to wrap things up all right it's now sunday here at max i'm here with randy delvin the uh senior graphic designer at white wizard games and we just played a little bit of a demo of sorcerer a bright cheerful light and airy game that is on kickstarter right now I wouldn't know if I would call it that. It's a uh, it's a dark Victorian fantasy game where you are trying to destroy two areas of Victorian London using uh, one of four dark sorcerers that can trace their lineage back to the great dark old gods that are uh, pretty evil and capricious. So, using those sorcerers, you use minions to inflict damage onto areas, and it's a race against your opponent to inflict 12 damage. And once you own two areas, you win the game. Yeah, one of the things I thought was interesting about this, right, is that there's a there's a lot of ways to vary what your player is. I like I was Tegu, the demonologist of the Screaming Coast. Yep. And we have, you know, and a lot of the cards read like that. So you have your main character, you have your lineage, which you can be a necromancer, a demonologist. You can be one of the vampires, which are called the Bloodlord, and you also have the Animist, which are bugs and spiders. And I'm not particularly a big fan of spiders, so I really get the EBGBs for those. 
and then also you pick a location and that's where you've trained and, and became more powerful and you can use those in combat to, as combat tricks okay and how much longer is this on kickstarter for folks who want to go look at it so it'll be about another 18 days about mid-december and uh i would recommend you try to look it up quick all right so we're here at the aegis booth on sunday at pax unplugged this is a what, robot fighting game that you've already funded it on Kickstarter and it's in the pre-order stage? Yeah, absolutely, man. So yeah, we did a Kickstarter earlier this year in the, around uh, May-June and we succeeded 300% uh, of our goal and we are now just finishing the game up and taking pre-orders. It should be out uh, early 2018. Okay, and this isn't just... Uh, I remember the question, this is just robots, this is combining robots, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, here's the here's the hot pitch. So the game is called Aegis, A-E-G-I-S, and you build a team of five robots and you play against your opponent's team of five robots. It is a 25 to 35 minute little tactics game. Um, it's maybe like a super fast, uh, cheaper, and easier to learn alternative to uh, more complex games like uh, Battletech and War Machine. So yeah, you make a team of five robots, you play against your opponent's team of five robots, there's five different kinds of robot in the game. Assault, Evasive, Guard, Intel, and Support. It spells Aegis. The robots are color-coded. And there are 100 robots in the box, uh, thanks to Kickstarter stretch goals. So there's a lot of content, a lot of different teams you can build. The main mechanic is that your guys share energy with each other. So at the start of every turn, they all pull action points together. And then you draw from that pull to move an attack. So depending on what robots you use uh, on your team, it determines how much stuff you can do on your turn. And then, the, of course, the other cool thing is that you can merge robots of uh, different classes together to make bigger guys. So if you have, like, an assault guy and a support guy, you can put them together and make an assault support guy. So you make, uh, yeah, multicolored robots. And if you want to put three robots together, you can, four robots together. Or you can actually put all five of the robots on your team together to make Voltron. And uh, that's, the, uh, that's the shtick of the game. Voltron is not a bad shtick. Not only do I remember that, but now my kid likes it because there's a new Netflix show. Yeah, right? It's a great show, too. It's probably the best Voltron show that we've ever gotten. Yeah, so, sometimes, <laughs> it's, sometimes it's best not to go back and look at the cartoons you liked when you were a oh, little yeah. kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Glorious 70s animation. <laughs> so, yeah. so, but yeah, it's, uh, the game's heavily based on, uh, yeah, like Power Rangers, Voltron, Pokemon, uh, a lot of other robot shows, uh, Gurren Lagann and, you know, uh, Gundam and things like that. Uh, our art style is pretty Saturday morning looking, as opposed to the more common, gritty, battletech looking robots you see on board games a lot. Yeah, we're focusing really on uh, the really hammy, yeah, Saturday morning cartoon aesthetic. Okay, uh, and people can find out more about that at robotstrategygame.com? Absolutely. Yeah, the robotstrategygame.com, uh, that'll take you right to our finished Kickstarter page, but also is the pre-order page. And because it's a Kickstarter page, you can see all of the stuff about the game, all the how-to-play videos, and all the reviews, and all the stuff that we unlocked, and then the pre-order button's right there on top. You can also look at our sweet Kickstarter video, which is basically an opening to a... It's basically an, uh, an anime opening. It's really it's really decadent, and everyone should watch it. <laughs> we have our own theme music and stuff. Okay, well, there's where you can check it out. Thanks for talking to yeah, us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. I'm here still at Box on Point with uh, Karen Lippett of Geek and Son, uh, makers of, I think, mostly tables, but not just tables, but geek furniture. Yeah, so we are primarily 
doing tables. They're gaming tables, but at the same time, they're also dining tables. So it's a real family experience. If you've got a family that likes to enjoy board games, but at the same time, you're not huge fans of having to clear them all away when it's time for dinner, that's what we base our tables on. We also do the furniture that goes along with them, so chairs, benches with storage. And on top of that, we also do coffee tables with TV insets. We have a wide variety of geek products. Yeah, I, you mentioned the benches. One of the best things about this interview is that I got to sit down after walking around for several hours. It's very nice. <laughs> uh, it's one thing that we really enjoy is watching people come over, seeing the seats and just going, oh, my, thank you, and just being able to take a sit, you know, take a seat, which then in turn means that they're sitting in front of one of our tables, which then allows us to start conversations. Okay, so there's a, there's a decent number of gamer or aimed tables on the market right now if somebody is looking at getting one of these things you want to you want to be able to put the cover over your your game and what is somebody going for when they want a geek and sun table so a geek and sun table is real hardwood and it's handcrafted to your specifications so if you want something that is bigger than what we do or smaller than what we do we can do all of that if you want a different color for the table in the stain options we've also got accessories like cup holders wine glass holders we can do additions to the table such as led lights sound systems anything like that we can do so you're not set to only one size table if you want something different we can do that entirely on top of that if you've got a specific uh, like if you want a specific height for the game vault if you've got a specific game we can add that as well yeah so yeah we're sitting at one with led lighting to keep it in and i, I don't know if people are going to be able to hear it now but if you can hear music in the background i think that's is that coming from the other table that's on the, uh, the other corner of the booth so that is coming from the table. Uh, our Henry table is the is that's the one that you can hear. Um, it's our what we call our high end table. There are speakers inset into the table, so it is a centerpiece that you can use for parties if you're having a party. On top of that, if you're running D and D campaigns, which a lot of people are doing these days, it means that you can have a little bit of background noise, add a little bit of atmosphere to the campaign as well. There's probably some sort of cross promotion with the guy with uh, Ben over at Sirenscape. <laughs> We've actually had a, quite a few people that have come over and gone, "Oh, this would be really good with Sirenscape." <laughs> We've gone, "We know." <laughs> so we're constantly looking at, you know, making it so that our tables are accessible to all of the different games to everybody that wants to play. So if somebody wants to play Sirenscape and they need something specific for the table, we will do our best to work with them for that. Okay. Uh, and people can find out more. It's, it's geekandsun.com uh, with an N in the middle there. That is correct. It's geekandsun.com. So G-W-E-K-N-S-O-N.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter as well as Instagram. And we are also looking at potentially doing a more expanding more on our YouTube channel. Any of the information that you know that we have on our tables can be found either on the website or on our social media. If you have any questions at all, feel free to drop us an email at info at geekandsun.com. We're always there and we're always ready to answer any questions you may have. Thanks for talking to me, Garen. Not a problem. Cheers. Thank you very much. I'm breaking in here to mention something. I, I was actually planning on mentioning this in the vampire section. But since it, it relates to, to the Geek and Sun uh, interview you just heard, like we mentioned in there, you can buy a table from them that has built-in speakers in your, in your game table. Nice. <laughs> yes, yes. And Sirenscape got mentioned in there, right? But I 
you know, I have to say, like, I was I was thinking about this after I did that interview and I had played Vampire on Friday, and I I have enough what I could what could be fairly described as Vampire Club music <laughs> on my iPod. I, hey, hey. No, it's funny because I'm not the least bit surprised knowing you. Yeah, have it up, fuzzball. Oh, oh. I of course have the actual Vampire the Masquerade soundtrack, which is a fantastic album, by the way. You can get stuff from movies, for example, like uh, the opening scene to Blade, like where there's the bloodbath. Uh, that's Confusion by New Order. There's a decent amount of neo-goth stuff that you can run out to that. The Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines video game actually has decent songs in it, like is it Chiasm's Isolated. Anyhow, it's nifty to have a soundtrack when you're playing a game or something more exotic than a soundtrack like Sirenscape. But sitting around a role-playing game table with like the music coming out of the table and it makes me think of that club thing, right? Because if you you know, when you go to a, a club club, right, the sound, the music can be overwhelming. Like, it can be oppressive. That wasn't the best word. I mean, it, it, it can be, but that's a negative. I mean, ideally, you, like, then go with the music and and all that. But I, I just think that would be such a great scene if you were, like, having the characters go into the succubus club or whatever. And to ev- really evoke that by having the music, like, pounding right out of the game table... Am I am I alone in, in in thinking that sounds cool or No, no, I I like it too. <laughs> but playing the vampire uh again cuz I'll tell you it's been a while since I've I've done vampire. And talking about that table or or you know having it there at the Geek and Sun booth it really me think about it like that would be so cool. So if you have one of those, if anybody lives in you know the DMV, I guess I right, I guess that's what we call the Northern like Virginia Maryland district, right? DMV. Because it takes two hours to be do anything there. I think it's just I like to live places that are initialisms. So I moved from the ATL, and now I live in the DMV. Uh, <laughs> so back to the interviews. I'm here at the Level 99 Games booth at PAX Unplugged with, with Brad Talton, looking at the giant pretty box of Millennium Blades and uh, also a variety of other things, including the uh, Penny Arcade cross-branded. Somewhat appropriate, given where we are. Yeah, yeah, we actually had these flown in. This is pre-release weekend for Noir Automata. You can pre-order it on our store, but it won't be out in stores until January, February next year. Um, but we should probably have it at PAX South, is what I'm planning on. So uh, probably early next year, you'll be able to get your hands on a copy of this game. It's just like the original uh, automa- or the original Noir games, except now with Penny Arcade's Noir uh, branding, the side series Automata. And uh, a few new rules updates. There's a few new play modes to the game. Noir, uh, noir veterans will have a lot to like in this edition. We've improved a lot of the card quality. A lot of the uh, We have tiles now for the board, which is a big upgrade. So uh, all in all, it's a box I'm really proud of, uh, and it's been getting great reception here at the show. So I know Millennium Blades itself has been out for a bit, but I know you guys have continued uh, with some expansions for that and a variety of little packs. What's the the latest thing for Millennium Blades? The latest big thing is set rotation. Um, This is the first small box expansion for Millennium Blades. It's about half, again, the content of the base box, so you have a lot more variety in your store, a lot of new promos to unlock and, and play through. 
Um, in set rotation, aliens uh, descend, the dead rise, the Illuminati takes over, and uh, Cthulhu returns to Earth, and all these terrible uh, apocalyptic disasters, you have to flirt with the power of card games. This is the cooperative expansion for Millennium Blade. So let's play one to four players co-op against the forces of darkness. It's a really cool expansion. We had a lot of fun putting it together. Of course, more crazy references, more Fabio's great art, more of the fun humor of Millennium Blades. It's exactly what you think it is. Uh, it's set rotation. So. <laughs> we have uh, Mega Man Blue and Mega Man Orange. Yeah, and we actually sold out of the Proto Man Red Box that would go okay. in the middle of these, but... Um, the Mega Man Pixel Tactics is a collaboration between us and Jasco Games and Capcom. And so by all our powers combined, we've built Mega Man Pixel Tactics. It's similar to the rules of base Pixel Tactics, so if you've played that, you'll be right at home with it. Now featuring all the Robot Masters from every Mega Man game, 1 through 6, 9, 10, and a couple bonus and DLC characters, um, including Base and Trouble. All of that, uh, so this is the only Mega Man game where you can play as every Robot Master. Uh, in the series, excluding 7 and 8, but uh, yeah, it's, that's our claim to fame. It's a lot of fun, but it's Mega Man, you know? You know, it's Mega Man and it's Pixel Tactics. It's exactly what it says in the 10. So. Okay, and that's not your only uh, collaboration with Jasco, right? Because Jasco has a license for Mega Man, but you now have the Exceed fighting system, which is based on a world that Jasco originally yeah, created. So Jasco licensed to us all of their characters for from Red Horizon, which was their UFS property, Universal Fighting System collectible card game. So we built Exceed, which is a standalone fighting card game, and we used some of their art and characters. Uh, so it's got all the great Genzo Man art from like years of Jasco's developments, and um, we put that out. If you have played fighting card games in the past, this is kind of a, a new take on the formula. It is a sort of hybrid between the card game style and the standalone board game style. If you've played a game like uh, like Battlecon, then you'll feel like uh, you'll feel kind of at home with it. But instead of being full information think tank kind of game, like this kind of like chess like uh, very crunchy game like Battlecon is, Exceed is a much more like draw my cards, play my attacks. You know, it all flows a lot quicker from the players, and there's not always a right and wrong answer to what you're going to do because um, the opponent's cards are varied and they don't have all their options available to them. So it's a, it's a very neat system. We've had a lot of success with it. Uh, we're actually giving out free demo decks of that this weekend. And uh, the game itself is only $25 to uh, so pick up and play. Any set is a core set. You can pick it up and play with it right away. But it is non-constructible, uh, standalone. So you get a character, you get their 30 cards. That's everything that will ever come out for them. It's the complete fighter. And you can do battle with any other fighter in the system using that. So is each of the, the $25 boxes one yes, fighter? Four, four fighters four. in each of those boxes, yeah. So a total of 16 fighters across the series. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Thanks for talking to us, Brad. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, we're here at, at the Passport Game Studios booth. I'm with Alistair Carney, uh, the founder of, of Rule and & Make. And we're looking at the pretty, pretty... Uh, uh, I was going to say, are we near the final version of Hands of Fate Ordeals? Very, very close, yeah. So the base game is done. Um, so yeah, what you're looking at is Hand of Fate Ordeals, the, uh, our prettiest version at the moment. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't, I, I don't want to go into what's not there, but yeah, it looks, it looks great with what you already have. The, the miniatures, I mean, the miniatures look good, the cards look good. So what is Hand of Fate Ordeals? So Hand of Fate Ordeals is a collaboration between ourselves and Defiant Development. Defiant Development is a video game studio in Australia that brought the original Hand of Fate to life. I think they created Hand of Fate. And so if Hand of Fate Ordeals is set after the events of Hand of Fate 1, 
but before the events of Hannah Fate 2, which is the sequel of the video game that came out very recently, you play as one of the four companion characters from Hannah Fate 2, and uh, you are playing Callus's game. At its heart, uh, Hannah Fate Ordeals is a deck builder, and it has a familiar adventuring element uh, that players of Hannah Fate 1 will be very accustomed to. So yeah, it's it's nestled right in between the two, and it's part of the greater Hand of Fate universe. Okay, if you're coming as I do, not knowing the video game, this is a deck builder where your characters are then, it's competitive, they're moving around this board trying to de- defeat challenges, right? Yeah, right. So it uh, takes place over three uh, tiers, and each tier has a different royal, starting with the jack, then the queen, then the king. So again, similar to Hand of Fate 1, which had uh, the royals that you were trying to defeat in the various suits. So similar in this, so you've got the plague, skull, uh, scales, and dust suits. And you're traversing each level, finding the royal, defeating the royal, and then progressing to the next tier of encounters. So the aim of the game is to work through all three tiers, defeat the jack, then the queen, then the king. And then once the king has been defeated, uh, tallying up all your fame points uh, and seeing who wins. So it is a competitive game, but it's uh, it's not adversarial. You're not uh, fighting each other. You're just rushing out into the environment, into the map, finding interesting encounters, looking, hunting down the, the royals, all the while improving your character and deck building your way to, to be more powerful, to be able to defeat more minions and so forth. Okay, uh, now... If people wanted to kickstart this, they've long ago missed their chance, but where can they go now to, to check it out or pre-order it? Yeah, we ran the Kickstarter about six months ago, so yeah, uh, long since uh, gone. However, the good news is we are taking pre-orders right now, and that will go into our pledge manager system, and uh, anyone that pre-orders can access to uh, get access to add-ons and so forth. You can hit up handofffateordeals.com, just uh, one, one word. Alternatively, uh, it'll be hitting retail uh, later next year. Uh, we're aiming for around that April uh, retail release, and uh, that'll be through our distributor, Passport Game Studios. Okay, thanks for talking to us. No worries. So, Jay, did you see uh, Hand of Fate or Deals when it was on Kickstarter? I might have. The name rings a bell, but I can't place it. Which one was that? This is where we have the limitations of the technology, because, of course, Jay and I having this conversation, Jay has not heard the interview. No. That you, the reader, have just heard. It's a deck-building game with a, like, dungeon exploration sort of theme. Okay. I don't know if I didn't see it when it was on Kickstarter, or... Uh, I saw it, and I'm like, ah, I don't know. You're like, you gotta, you gotta pick up, you gotta pick and choose. But seeing it... At Pax Unplugged, made me really wish that I had kicked it. Curses. Mm. Curses. It's not fair. On the other hand, I'm very glad that I did kickstart Fog of Love. Because that thing has been getting a ton of buzz. So I'm I'm glad I did that one. And it was, there was, I mean, it wasn't like Fantasy Flight line size, but that was a game that there was a line. That was one of the booths where they had to mark off an area for people to stand waiting in line for the demos. Hmm. Its tagline is romantic comedy as a board game. Right, yes, yes. Yeah, so it, it's a two-player game where you're a couple. Mm-hmm. You're generally trying to have a successful relationship, right? But you'd want different things out of the relationship and so on and so forth. But that that should be coming soon. It mm. should be coming soon. I want it. Okay, and then interviews. I'm up here in the media room because I wanted to have a little, we wanted a little change of scenery for this interview. So we're 
I'm here with uh, Patrick Capera of Crafty Games, and we have this glorious view of the entire expo hall down here at, at PAX Unplugged, and we've been talking about some of Crafty's games that are set in the, the Mistborn world, and I know you've got board games that have that are coming out, you've got a role-playing game. What's going on with those lines right now? Yeah, so we've been making the role-playing game for uh, about five years, since 2012. Uh, there are five books out for it. Uh, we've got another one coming next year. Uh, it covers both different eras of the world setting. Uh, the uh, The books actually are six books and two trilogies, uh, three of them in the classic era, which is sort of the, the era of the Lord Ruler. Um, this will make sense to the Mistborn fans at home. Uh, and, uh, and, and three in the Alloy of Law era, which take place after things have, have sort of resolved in the first trilogy. The, the world changes quite a bit there, and I won't spoil anything. We actually cover both of those eras with the RPG. So three books in the first one, two books in the second. And we've got a, a Nobles book coming next year, the no- Nobles, the Golden Mandate, that's, a, that's actually going to cover a whole new era, uh, a whole new portion of the world that we haven't really touched on before. Uh, we sort of talked about nobles and they've come in as NPCs, but we haven't ever really delved, delved too deeply into what their daily life is like and the struggles that they're facing and how they can be used as NPCs. And we all have an adventure in there that'll take you into that world. The most recent book, actually, just a couple months ago that we released was Alloy of Law, Masks of the Past. That actually covers Bands of Moraining and uh, Shadows of Self, which are the last two books that were released for Mistborn, both of them in the Alloy of Law trilogy. Um, so if you like steampunk gunslingers, that's, that's, that book's going to be your jam. And on the board game side, we've got uh, Mistborn House War, which just released. Uh, it'll actually be in stores through December in the U.S., and that's uh, where the role-playing game, you're playing sort of heroic thieving crews and, and you're trying to change the world and you, uh, you and rally for a cause. Uh, much like Vin and, and Kelsey are in the other heroes of the novels, in the in the uh, Mistborn House War game, uh, you're playing the nobles, uh, much like the nobles' golden mandate book. So we sort of developed them at the same time. And in, uh, in this, you're trying to jockey for the Lord Ruler's favor and save the Empire from crumbling. And if you can do that, then the person who manages to have the most of Lord Ruler's favor wins. But if you don't and the Empire falls, you want to have the least possible favor. So you've got these two diametrically opposed victory conditions that are going on. Please don't crush me after the Empire Falls Heroes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I was nowhere near him. You're like the star scream of the, of the Mistborn universe. Yeah. So in, in the board game, Mistborn House of War... Um, uh, beyond the, the overall victory condition, how are you mechanically getting to that point of you've got more favor or less favor with the Lord? That's an actual uh, excellent question. Actually, it's Mistborn House War. There's House. no of in the middle. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, no, no worries. Uh, it is a freeform negotiation game. So uh, I like to say that there are two sides to the game. One of them is a mildly strategic uh, sort of um, board management game, and the other one is this freeform negotiation game. So you start off, everybody starts off with a, a limited amount of resources, and you get uh, the same number of resources plus any extras that you've gotten through personalities or anything that you've played every time it's your turn. Those are actually going to have to last you until it's your turn again. So you've got a limited number of resources over several turns that are an entire round. Uh, so that resource management is part of it. Um, but how you use those resources is that um, on anyone's turn, they can send the Steel Inquisitor, which is a mini that we include in the, in the game, off to solve a problem. Problems are these cards that march across the board. 
And if the um, the steel uh, inquisitor is sitting on a problem, it means everyone can offer to help solve that problem in any way they want. So you might be able to solve it on your own. That's rare, but it's possible. If you can't, then other people can offer some of the resources they've got in exchange for some of the favor that the problem will generate. All of the problems generate a fixed number of, of uh, favor, although there very rarely are some ways to modify that number. Um, so the problem might be worth like a dozen favor, for example, and require six resources, and you only have three of them. You could go to another person who has some or all of those resources and say, well, if you'll give them to me, I'll offer you this much. Or they could do the opposite and actually offer you and, and try and demand it. You go back and forth until you've reached a deal. Um, if no one can reach a deal, then the problem stays on the board and everybody keeps their resources. But um, uh, frequently, the way the game will work is that um, you'll come to some kind of agreement uh, the, uh, the, the problem will be taken off the board and the, uh, and the favor will be split accordingly. Where the game gets really interesting is that we have personalities that you can play that modify all of this. So you've, you've got Mistborn that can go in and can change the, uh, you generally reduce the resources that, that are, uh, needed to solve a problem. You've got other guys that are sort of, uh, uh, they're, they're saboteurs that will go in and actually increase the resources that you need to solve a problem. And those can be played by other people who aren't even in the deal, who are like, I really want to scuttle this. Uh, you could offer, to help people in another turn on something you know they're going to want to do later. The trick with that is that in the game, the only things that are binding, the only things you absolutely must do are things you agreed to do this turn. So you could actually uh, say, you know, I'm going to give you a, a, a little bit of my uh, my food now, but later on you're going to help giving me by giving me some of your prestige to help solve this other thing that I need to do. And then you just blow them off and don't do it, um, which is a great way to make friends in the final empire. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, there is a card in the personality deck called the Obligator, which is a character from the novels that essentially is like a – they're a deals broker and, and an enforcer in the setting. Um, and you can play them. Anyone can play them, even against someone who's not actually involved in the deal, to make that deal binding no matter how long it lasts. So actually, you could sort of wait for the oppor- an opportune moment when you've got one of these in your hand. And it's like, wow, that deal would really screw both of these people long term. So here's an obligator. Congratulations. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. Uh, so there's a whole lot of that. Um, and the other thing that you're doing on the... Um, uh, on your turn is moving problems across the board. Everything has to march forward, and you also have to add new problems to the board. Um, and how the, those move is highly strategic because there's only so many spaces in each column as they go across based on the number of players. Uh, so you can very easily, by moving some of them first and some of them later, sort of accelerate some problems and hold some back. There are personalities that can do that even more. Rioters push it forward and soothers push it back, which are two of the, uh, the alamancers in the setting. So all of that in tandem is sort of the, the, the way that you get to the end game. The end game actually being Vin, who's one of the heroes of the novels, the primary hero of the novels. When her problem card comes out, it signifies the game is almost over. If you will, if you don't deal with her, it really jacks up the unrest by quite a bit, uh, a half of what is needed to make the empire fall. Uh, so if you've allowed unrest to creep up along the way and then she erupts, then the empire generally tumbles into chaos. 
Um, solving her is one of the hardest things to do in the game, but she's also worth the highest number of favor in the game. So uh, putting uh, putting her uh, or solving her problem and, and undermining her plot is one of the best ways to wind up with the Empire's preserved highest score victory. Okay. So Mistborn, House War, and it is out now and should be in widespread release in the U.S. before the end of the year? Yeah, yeah. It'll, it, uh, it's, I'm told that it'll start hitting first stores by the 27th of November. Oh, look, I'm cutting in again because I, I just can't help myself here. So you just heard the interview with Patrick Capera about the Mistborn, House of War. Ah, look, I did it again. I mean, I, the guy has to correct me in the interview and I do again. The Mistborn, House War game and their their role-playing lines and so i I was bringing it for two reasons just if you were not aware did you know that patrick was one of the original folks with legend of the five rings i did not realize that i did it did i so that is is cool yeah the things that you know so there you go so you can if you want to support an old l5r hand you can go check out crafty games but this was also a little funny because remember we talked earlier in in the episode about how Jay is a bit more up with the uh, <laughs> this thing. So Jay, fan of Mistborn, you're right. You've actually say yes. read the books. I have read the books. Yes. Yes, Mistborn House War was one of your most anticipated games for for Gen Con, and so of course I'm doing the interview who's never read a Mistborn book in my <laughs> book in my life who had. You know, didn't even know it existed until Jay discussed it within the, the board game context. So, but I, I realized that we, it was one of your most anticipated games at Gen Con, but I don't know if we ever heard back from you on it. Did you get the chance to check it out at, at Gen Con? So I, I did check it out at Gen Con. I picked up a copy at Gen Con, and then because my life is crazy busy, I have not actually had a chance to play it since Gen Con, but I do have a copy sitting on my giant stack of games and shrink wrap that I really want to play, but can't seem to find the time for. <laughs> yeah. You feel a little bad sometimes if you, I mean that one like has been out, but I, they, at the, the very cool stuff had a booth. So I bought, right. I bought the Buffy, the vampire slayer, le- legendary Buffy yeah. from upper deck at Gen Con. And they had a like half price at PAX Unplugged, yeah. cool stuff selling it. I'm like, ah, yeah. you just waited two months or three months Chris oh well such is life I'm here now at the Rock Manor games booth uh, you remember that they I, I like their their first game Brass Empire but I'm here today with Mike Nade and Todd Walsh talking about an uh, and I've been looking at rather uh, a prototype of an upcoming game called Set a Watch what is this one about so Set a Watch is basically uh your D&D adventurers getting together, and you've heard a conspiracy about uh, the bad guys and acolytes resurrecting sort of the big, bad, nasty bosses that you've defeated. We call them unhallowed in this game. And you visit different locations throughout a series of rounds that you've heard that they may be coming back, and it's a line manipulation puzzle, so you use dice and card abilities to manipulate a, a line. It's sort of like tower defense meets... Uh, a line puzzle, and uh, you work together. It's a cooperative game, uh, and we have sort of the standard D and D tropes and classes, cla- uh, classes and races, you know, in the game. Yeah, the, the point of the game was to try to get that feeling back when you're playing D and D and you're doing combat, and that thing where you're doing, hey, you lightning bolt this guy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit this guy with my sword because you have a better attack against him. You get that feeling where you're working cooperatively, but you need the other guy to do something because that's not your strength. 
and the line puzzle allows the game to be that boss for you because it's going to give you changing problems every time. You're going to have to attack this character before that one so his abilities don't trigger. So it makes you have to make decisions and it gives you something to work against every round that changes. Yeah, and you, and you have a, a significant amount of, of hidden information, at least at the beginning, uh, if I understand correctly, of what the line is because you, one of the characters is tending a camp and creating a fire and these monsters are trying to attack you while you're in your camp, so what you can see depends on how well lit you've managed to make your area. Yeah, that's where the, the name comes from. Set of watches from that part in D&D where the, the DM goes, hey, you guys have to decide who's going to be on watch and who rests. So in here, the resting character goes in and does the camp actions. They chop wood, they look ahead for trouble, they check different locations in the map so they can see what's coming up for the next round. The, the players who are active have to defeat the creatures in the line. But they can only see as far as the fire is high. So they have to, the person in camp has to get the firewood as high as possible so you can see more creatures in the line to know what's coming. Yeah, creatures have different reveal abilities and first position abilities. So a lot of the puzzles are, you know, when you reveal a creature, something bad may happen. They may move in the line to come forward or backward. And then when those cards are moving around, it may trigger first position abilities, which are pretty much universally bad in this game, where you'll take damage, you know, lose your card abilities, lose wood from the fire, things like that. Yeah, that, that's some of those questions you really don't want to hear your DM be asking. You're like, so what exactly was your marching order, or so who was taking the second watch? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for this one, uh, you're actually able to make those decisions based on, all right, who's hurt the most? You go into camp, you'll refresh some of your ability. And you'll get maybe the chance to heal somebody else. So that's how you see how you can get things recovered. Where usually the guy unconscious just has to wait and hope not to die while he's sleeping. <laughs> yeah. And so we've been looking at here uh, a prototype version. Uh, what's your, your current hopes for getting this out to folks? Well, we're getting, I mean, you can tell from, from probably looking at it that we have a lot of finished art. I mean, this is placeholder, but this is, you know, finished by our artists. So we're getting more and more completed. Um, almost all the location art is finished, so that's always the big piece for us at Rock Matter Games. We always like to make sure all the artwork is done so we can deliver games on time to backers. You know, we're always... We, we may say the game will be available when we launch on Kickstarter a year from the launch date, but we almost always deliver before that. So that's because we do all the artwork. We make sure sort of everything's ready to go to print as much as we can before we launch. So we're getting there. You know, we're... We're sort of, I would say we have less than one-third of the art left to do, so we're sort of trying to finish that out sort of the start of next year so we can launch sometime January, Feb late January, maybe early February, sometime in that time frame, first quarter for sure. Okay, thanks for talking to us, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm here with Chris Amber behind, actually, the New Experience Workshop booth. Uh, I just finished up a demo of Showdown, the samurai card game. And I, I think this is, if you were not a Kickstarter backer, I think you were saying this is literally the first place that it's been available to buy? Yep. Other than a little local convention we've been at, this is the first release of uh, Showdown, and we're probably set to actually sell out by the end of the day. Showdown's a fast-paced two-to-six player dueling card game. Players are just trying to build the best hand of five they can before they get into a showdown. And... Uh, when you are playing with the multiple, multiple players, you're trying to eliminate them, and the last person standing wins. Yeah, and so this is right. You've got you had notoriety and titles and weapons to try to, and a bunch of tricksy cards in there, it looked like. Yep, all kinds of different stuff that you can do. It's all about reading what your opponents take and what they pass on. 
trying to get a feel for their hand so you know how to build yours and who you want to have a duel with. Yeah, and I know because I know there are some people who hate to play games with player elimination. There is a variant where you are defeating people in the, the duels to accumulate points instead of knocking them out. Right, yeah. I like Personally, I love the intensity of the one-and-done high-stakes duels, but if you're playing with family or just people who don't like the elimination, it works a lot better to uh, just have the point system where both players get dealt back in and you just keep going until someone wins. Yeah, and it looked like this was one of those easy-to-carry... It's in a, 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 what I'll call a Star Realm-size box, right? You can just carry it in your pocket? Yeah, yeah, just pretty much exactly that size. It's just meant to be something you can throw in your pocket, play with anyone, teach in five minutes, play all night. It's great for conventions in particular. Like, we love trying to... We tell people, you're going to want to get this on Friday so that you can play it all weekend because it's just the game that you can pull out and you don't have to learn the rules for 30 minutes. Uh, and now this... Showdown was done on Kickstarter, and I think you guys are planning a Kickstarter for sometime early next year? Yeah, between uh, January and March, we're going to have On Their Merry Way, which is a, a full-size board game, is our first one, in which we're going to have uh, two to five players taking the role of Robin Hood's Merry Men. We're going to be setting traps for the rich and greedy merchants that come through Sherwood Forest, so you can part them with their profit. Um Players are going to grab resources, they're going to spend them to build the traps, and it's all about setting things up and undercutting your opponents in order to uh, just make the most profit possible. Yeah. I, l- little did we know that Fire Talk and Little John were going to be fighting over who was going to get the most money. Yeah, well, you know, Robin Hood's thing is about giving to the poor. The Merry Men are, you know, have their own things going on. <laughs> okay, thanks for talking to us. Yep, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I'm going to cut in again. I didn't have an interview for this one, but I have to say, I and I, I put a picture of it up on our Facebook page so you, you can see it up there, but just walking around, did you see the, I think it was a half booth that was occupied by Strange Machine Games. I think it was one of these ones where they were sharing it with another publisher, and they have the Robotech games. Did you happen to see that walking around the expo hall? No, I missed that one. It was in aisle 10 in the back? Okay. I stop, I had to stop and look at this because, and I think they have like three games coming out, but one of them is called Assault on the uh, SDF-1, and it looks like it, I, I don't know about the exact mechanics, but it, it's reminiscent of like Star Trek Panic, where you've got the SDF in the middle and you're trying to deal with the things that are coming around and attacking. And I say Star Trek Panic rather than something like Castle Panic because you can rotate the Enterprise to change the shield facings in that. Right. But it was very eye-catching because there was like a constructed SDF-1 in the middle of the board. I guess it's not necessarily there because if you're just an aircraft carrier version, it's just it was just printed on the board. But when it turns into the robot, you've got this big robot in the middle of the table. It looked really cool. <laughs> That's really all I know. I didn't get to play it or anything, but it was very visually appealing. So I missed that one, yeah. They have that... And they have a dice game, Ace Pilot, and then another one coming out. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they're all aiming for release next year, but but yeah, Assault on the SDF one really looked awesome. I am here at the Gatekeeper booth with John Rott. We've got some uh, pretty games and some pretty dice, so he's going to tell you about them. How you doing? Thanks, Chris. Um, so here at Gatekeeper Games, we do games and dice, which is pretty rare. We specialize in both. So um, our flagship game is called the King's Armory. 
It's the world's first and only uh, true-to-form tabletop tower defense board game. So it's uh, one to seven players, full co-op. It's a meaty gamer's game. It's a four-hour playtime. It's a good. Uh, it's one of the very rare meaty strategy co-ops. Uh, a lot of co-ops are uh, on the lighter side. There's nothing wrong with that. We decided to go a little bit uh, medium, medium plus on our co-op and uh, making a nice long meaty one. If you've ever played a tower defense video game and uh, any version of role-playing, then you know how to play this game. Um, it plays exactly the way you expect it should with all the um, tower defense style, true tower defense video game style. And, um, uh, and instead of towers going pew, 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 we have uh, epic heroes uh, that feel like playing your like, a level 25 character. And we assign those to the towers and they go out from the towers. So we make the strategic choices to call the monsters through them. That's awesome. Do these constructible towers come with the game and all that? Yep. Uh, the game plays in 3D because you got the uh, the towers that have their strategic uh, aspects to it. Now, you build your own map every game. The synergy between any two heroes that you might choose are going to um, completely change the way you approach the game. So one of the things that I promise with it is uh, endless replayability. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand here, we have Adapt, which has pictures of bits of fish. And I'm going to guess this one plays a lot quicker. Yeah, this is kind of the opposite of the King's Armory. <laughs> so King's Armory is four hours. This is 30 minutes, uh, 30 to 40 minutes. King's Armory is full co-op. This is eat your opponent's face until they're dead. King's Armory is um, one to seven players. This is two to three, expands to six. So basically, Adapt is a mashup style card and dice game where you take mutant fish and then battle to the death. <laughs> No, I see that ADAPT has uh, periods after that, so is that an acronym for something? Yeah, I'm going to have to pull it out of the manual so I get it right, because it's Latin, and I, can't, <laughs> and I can't pronounce it correctly without it. It means uh, ADAPTARE uh, DESCATARE APISCI PISCIS TALIS, which means ADAPT BATTLE BECOME THE MASTERFISH. Like you said, your games and dice, what do you have going on on the dice front here? It's so, gone. Um, on the dice front, we, uh, we invented a Habsies dice. Um, have these dice if you've seen them in your local retailer uh, they're actually gatekeeper games dice a lot of people confuse them with some uh, chess X and things of those sort uh, I love chess X I'm actually really good friends with the owner of chess X we have a friendship bond to not make each other stuff you know because that's the way the industry should work uh, Tom's great but um, the the Habsies dice uh, we literally split them down the middle they're a half and half design hence Habsies we always center the high and the low numbers on the color half. So when you get familiar with your dice set, you know that if you rolled all blue, you rolled your high number. If you rolled all purple or what have you, you rolled uh, your low number or whatever the setup might be for your color combination. We make color combinations nobody else is willing to touch. We have multiple sets with brown in it. Um, we have a brown and green set, which is like we sold out on the first day of because it's like the ultimate ranger and druid set. Um, uh, our purple and blue set we call Psionic Combat and um, they're hands down our most popular we have white on black we call yin yang appropriately the cool thing about them is um, beyond the neat aesthetic the half and half design actually allows us a better uh, quality control of the inside of the die there are no air bubbles and then by choice we, um, we use a higher density resin than uh, what is common in the marketplace so um, they are, scientifically speaking, the heaviest, densest, and most well-balanced resin dice on the planet. Okay, so, so you're saying you make well-balanced dice. Can you well-balance them so the 20 always comes up on top on mine? Yeah, you put it in the microwave. It's actually like the common way to just make weighted cheater dice. So, I mean, you can microwave your hazy dice, act like you're balanced, but just keep rolling 20s if you really wanted to. Well, well, there you go, folks. Expert advice on how to cheat from the guy who makes the dice here at Pax Unplugged. You know, you asked. <laughs>
Here we are. I am with Jake Davis in the USA Opoly booth in what should be the very last uh, recording that we have from this year's the inaugural PAX Unplugged. And right now we are standing and looking at Super Mario Level Up, which I will note because I mistook this as well, is not the same thing as the Mario Brothers game that you heard from me talk about at Gen Con. So what, uh, what is going on with Super Mario Level Up? Um, first off, thank you for coming by the booth, and uh, excited to share um, our products with your audience. So Super Mario Level Up is a light strategy game where each player will get uh, their unique lineup card. Uh, this lineup card includes characters like Mario, Luigi, Daisy, Peach, Bowser, all your favorite Mario characters. Um, and you are a really simple game, just taking turns moving characters up the level um, and trying to get the most points you can um, with your characters on the different levels. So there's a light bluffing mechanic. You know, you can move up other people's characters, um, and you vote to see if you want to stay the, have that character stay or not. Um, so you can move up other people's characters and kick them off. Um, but it's a really light game. There's a 3D board. Um, it's kind of like a little mini, mini game in the Mario Party uh, video game, I kind of call it. So it's fun to just relive, uh, you know, your favorite Mario characters um, and we're excited to bring them to tabletop. Yeah, yeah that's cool. I mean, there's, there's a, a decent number of, of games out there. I mean, including old stuff like Winter's Circle, where it's, I, which are out there often betting games and that yeah. one. But right, yeah, you here you don't get to pick. But uh, hey, it's uh, you know you're, you're trying to figure out what what it is that the other players want, what it is that you want, and how to and maneuver just, that. Just, just score the most points. Yeah, just on a on a light Mario theme yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, and then next up here, I can see you have the. The new branded versions of Codenames? Yeah, so we're excited to partner with Czech Games to do licensed versions of Codenames, so the, the popular social party game uh, that everyone is familiar with or most people are familiar with. Um, so the first two licensed versions we are doing uh, or have put out are Disney and Marvel. So with both versions, uh, people might not know, but there's pictures on one side and words on another. So you can play all pictures, all words, or a combination of the two. Um, if you're feeling, you know, up for a challenge, you know, I've played them. It's kind of tough that way, but it can be fun. Um, so Marvel has all comic book-based Marvel art, and it's Team Shield versus Team Hydra, and Thanos turns into the assassin in that one. So that's kind of a fun twist. And then for Disney, um, it's just Team Red versus Team Blue. And with that game, you get 4x4 four four grids as well as 5x5 five five grids. So you can play with a younger group of people, uh, like kids, um, if you want to. Uh, makes it more accessible because there's no game over word or assassin in the Disney version or in the 4x4 four four grids. So that if a kid chooses incorrectly, they don't feel too discouraged. Yeah, and not necessarily apropos anything to spin, but I note that there are there are two characters primarily depicted on the Codenames box, and you still got a girl in there. I always find it a little frustrating when you have to have like at least six characters before they're willing to add a female to some sort of superhero looking thing. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we've got Spider-Man and we've got Captain Marvel on the box top. So that just goes to show you that we incorporate uh, current comics you know, into this game uh, as much as we can because Captain Marvel's a generally new character to the Marvel Universe. Her current prominence is she's she's gone through a number of reinventions right. since her I can't remember what I'm doing right. in the, right. the 70s version. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, we go from the the light strategy game to the, uh, the 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 sort of family-ish versions of the party game, and then the the thing, which is a uh, slightly heavier, I suspect. Yes. Yeah, so this is um, we're very excited to put this out. It came out a couple weeks ago, so it is the thing infection at Outpost Thirty One. This is a hidden identity social deduction game based on John Carpenter's nineteen eighty two version of the film. Um, so in this game. 
you have humans and imitations. The game always starts with one imitation, but the humans don't know who that imitation is. Obviously, you know what role you are. Um, so you're going around to different rooms within the outpost, completing missions to try to find different items like dynamite, the flamethrower, or rope, um, while defeating different things. So as you start clearing the different sectors, there's three different sectors, um, you get new blood sample cards, so humans can turn into imitations halfway through the game. So it's kind of fun uh, to have your role change and kind of figure out who's who at the table. So you got to have that, you know, table talk banter back and forth of, uh, you did this on that turn, so I'm, I'm kind of ske sketching about you, um, I don't trust you as much, so... Um, goal of the humans, try to find all the items you need, defeat all the things, and escape with only humans on the helicopter. So there's only a set number of spots on the helicopter. For the humans win, they need to find everything and escape with only humans. Imitations can uh, sabotage missions and kind of lag or uh, have the game drag on a little bit. And if they gain the trust of the humans to get voted on the helicopter, then the imitations win. So, um, really fun. It uh, kind of immerses you into the movie, and you get to experience that movie on tabletop with your friends. Okay, so now I'm curious. So you said that there's a certain number of spots on the helicopter, and you can't have any imitations on the helicopter, but can the humans still win if you... One real human just has to get left behind, but hey, at least the uh, the imitations got stuck here. Um, no, so the, <laughs> you you can you probably will leave humans behind. Um, that's kind of like you know sacrificing for the greater good of humanity, you know, because once an imitation gets on the helicopter, they get brought back to you know the mainland. Um, let's say the United States, for example, um, and they'll go imitate humans and go infect the disease you know and spread it around the world so imitations win when they get one of the imitations on the helicopter oh okay yeah but but the humans can win leaving humans behind oh okay. yeah definitely yeah, 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 yeah. Just, you whoa. you will sacrifice humans you know, okay. <laughs> and there's a fun um there's a flamethrower mechanic so if you're not trusting of someone um if you're a little suspicious about someone and they've been like playing poorly the whole game you have the choice to torch them um so i've played several games where you act you accidentally torch a human where they, you know, play their hands not very well. Maybe they weren't sure about how to play. Um, they turned in some sabotage cards when they weren't supposed to. So um, there's a couple different ways that, you know, you can end up torching the humans, which are unfortunate for the humans. But uh, it's, it's a fun mechanic in the game. Okay. Thanks for talking to us, Jake. Yeah, thank you. So that was the last of my interviews for PAX Unplugged, but I wasn't quite done yet uh, because while I had been walking around the exhibit hall or the exhibitor portion of the expo hall on Sunday, I had seen a role-playing game called Clockwork Dominion. And this is a, a Victorian steampunk-themed role-playing game. And the, the interior art was gorgeous. There's a picture of that too I, uh, on, on the Facebook. Uh, or, you know, you can go look on their website. But I gotta say, this is not the first time I've, I've, I've seen an interesting looking clockwork steampunk Victorian themed game, right? Like, this is not the first one of these that's come out. We talked about my music earlier. I actually had Abney Park's Airship Pirates. Ooh, that was not good. So I wanted to check it out. So I had I had this this little slice of time right at the end before everything shut down at PAX. And so I went over and sat in on like the second half of the demo of Clockwork Dominion over in the just general tabletop 
area. So that's not enough to really have formed an, an ultimate opinion on the game, right? I haven't read it. I don't know. But it was enough that I think it's worth checking out, when I, which I will do when I have the chance. But in the, the meantime, I know on DriveThruRPG, they have a quick start that you can look into. And if that is the sort of thing that you think might be appealing to you, uh, you know, this uh, clockwork Victorian sort of role-playing game, I would suggest checking that out. I think it's worth your time, and then you can decide whether or not you want to, you know, splash on the actual books. But I thought that was a nice little wrap-up. And it was interesting. I left PAX Unplugged energized. I know partially it's because I actually got a reasonable amount of sleep on Saturday night. I know partially it's because it's three days. I know it's partially it's that, you know, I only had to drive four hours instead of, you know, however long to get home uh, after the con was done. But I just really had fun, whether or not it was playing role-playing games or uh, doing, you know, free demo stuff or chatting with people in the exhibitor hall or, or even the tournament stuff. There was lots of things to do and lots of people there, but it was not overwhelming. One of the things that I, I actually thought about is like, I'm sure that this will be marked as a big success, and I hope that it does not like mushroom with 10,000 more people in the same space next year. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I honestly hope that they are able to expand next year into more of the convention center. Well, yeah, because there was a lot of room left to expand. Oh, yeah, there totally was. I mean, the the first day I got there, didn't know where exactly to go, went into a building that said Convention Center, and the security guard was like, oh, if you want packs and plugged, go out, go another block, the entrance is over there. <laughs> well, yeah, it would have been nice if he had given you the directions to do that while not going out in the freezing cold, but... Uh... Well, yes. no, because it, it was in a part where I think they had closed it up so you couldn't stay in the building and get over there. Oh, they actually shut off part of it. Yeah, and it's right on top of a number of rail lines. I'll have to admit, because I, like many of us out there, have certain budgetary constraints, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm usually transiting it in, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll grant... It would be nice to just stay at the expensive hotel right next to the convention center. But if you are, you know, like me and you're you're taking transit in, there's a there's a whole bunch of rail systems that kind of congregate around there. Stuff that like I came in on the regional rail that comes from further out in the city, but there's a lot of there's like little smaller rail systems around there, but that that Jefferson stop uh and market you know, all of it seems to congregate right there. So that was was really convenient, I, I thought. Yeah. I'm very glad that I went up to this inaugural PAX Unplugged. I think I had fun with, like, pretty much everything I did. It was just a great time. It was. I also really enjoyed the con, and we'll probably try to go again next year, even though it's on the wrong side of the country. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you look at the map, it's actually on the right side of the country. I'm, I, I'm pretty sure. You make a compelling argument. <laughs> yes, and I'd say maybe I'll go to Pax Prime next year, but I won't. So, no. 
curse those. I I need to get to the point where I can uh like take all like they take the entire family to a con, and then also I need to not have to pay for four plane tickets to Seattle. That's when. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's where it all falls down. Yeah, I know, I know. It's like, well, because the. I mean, wait. Once once everybody could go to something like this within driving distance, that will be great. Yeah. But yeah, once you kick in the flying, whoo! Well, we were glad we were at PAX Unplugged. Uh, if you were at PAX Unplugged, we hope you had a great time. If you're going to be at PAX Unplugged next year, we will see you there. But until then, you have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can directly subscribe to one of our RSS feeds there, or you can subscribe to the podcast on the Apple Podcasts app, in the Google Play Music Store, or whatever sort of podcatcher you enjoy using. We are on most of the usual social media, so we are at Strange Assembly on Twitter, and we are facebook.com slash strangeassembly. You can also email me directly. I'm Chris at strangeassembly.com. That guy on the other microphone is Jay at strangeassembly.com. So hopefully easy for everyone to remember. We always love to hear from you on, on Twitter, on Facebook, directly through email, your comments, your feedback on the show, what you'd like to hear, uh, and anything you have to say, we'll, uh, we'll give it heed. But until then, for Jay Earl. I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.